0: Bless up for tuning in to Project Cheney. Magic happens when you question everything. Conspirituality becomes reality,
1: weirdness is welcomed, and it's okay to change your mind. Big up yourself. Everyone, please welcome mystic mark from my family thinks i'm crazy podcast and he is here to join me to talk about alistair crowley and i am really excited to hang out with you today and i'm also weirdly excited to talk about alistair crowley (laughs) how are you welcome to project cheney
0: thank you for having me here it's a pleasure to be here again right this is my second time on your show Uh, I hope to have you on my show very soon and uh, I hope to release this as a swap cast later on after you've released it because I'm very excited about this topic. I, for folks who don't know, had a sort of uh, (laughs) charged and exciting conversation about Aleister Crowley with my dear friend Sam Tripoli almost two years ago, a little more than two years ago now. And especially given the atmosphere of the time, uh, Sam was very much uh, <laughs> combative towards the latter part of our conversation. Obviously, him and I are friends, so it wasn't uh, it wasn't relationship altering, but I hadn't known him for that long. So in my mind, I was like, oh God, is this the end of my very <laughs> short career with Sam? Luckily, it wasn't. and uh, he understood. My point but what frustrated him was I gave him a very neutral perspective of Aleister Crowley uh, mostly because I wasn't willing to just say he's all bad and when you asked me to go and do this research I decided again okay is Crowley bad let's try to ask this question let's try to find a real answer and although he may have been an evil person so to speak for the the times that he was in i don't know if the modern person would consider him evil for maybe the reasons why we would assume Uh, from our modern perspective, he probably would have fit right in. Some of the things that he would have been alienated for would have been maybe more of his political and racial ideas, which uh, were very much of his time, uh, being a British man, thinking he was superior than women and anyone who wasn't white. So, I mean, there are many reasons to despise Crowley, uh, but there are also some reasons to... Give him a a the benefit of the doubt and be uh, a sort of uh, slight gratitude because in a weird way, if he hadn't lived the crazy life he lived and exposed some of this stuff through his writings, I feel personally that we would be dealing with a scarier world. what let me explain what I mean by that. Crowley at the behest of his peers published a lot of things that they his peers would have liked kept secret and you know with these occult uh, powers that have sort of commercialized themselves and are now used by you know f- fortune 500 companies to manipulate us into buying their products and into subliminally marketing towards us right i mean these tactics those occult tactics might not have been as evident to us if it wasn't for types like crowley in his day who did you know spent a great deal of time writing all this stuff out and uh you know like him or or not he possibly you know had that benefit to the world of of being this revealer and he very much thought of himself as this revealer right and and maybe that was a sort of personal ego a personal flaw of his again there are a lot of reasons to dislike Crowley especially when you look at his personal life and his personality and his tastes you know they definitely border on uh abusive and gross just to put it mildly and uh yeah Uh, other than other than those sort of more human evils that he was certainly a part of um at the time he generated this tremendous tremendous interest uh in these subjects and i i don't know for certain but i think he did a a great deal of uh of exposing things that would have remained secret to this day without him. So I guess that would be my only kind of don't throw the baby out with the yeah, bathwater, yeah. uh you know, statement about Crowley. But yeah, that's, that's kind of where I started with all this. And I also wanted to give people a, a, a fair look at Crowley now for anyone who's just coming to this, you know, with no firsthand knowledge of it. This might be a better conversation to listen to Uh, if someone's very serious about learning about Crowley. uh, I, you know, all my information comes from Tobias Churton, Richard Spence, who I've interviewed on my show, uh, Lauren Sutton, and then a few, you know, random things here and there on the internet so you know if you're very serious about learning about Crowley Tobias Churton has written six or seven biographies about Crowley all different aspects of his life and Richard Spence has written a book specifically about Crowley's espionage career or alleged espionage career and I really think that's where he was most diabolical was with his uh his connections to the intelligence community Uh, occult stuff aside his occult you know, in his occult kind of things really only affected the people who were stupid enough to to stick around him, you know, like, for example, Victor Neu- Neuberg, who we'll talk about later on, who, you know, unfortunately was taken advantage of for from Crowley, and he used him financially speaking, and also sexually, and, uh, you know, did all of these occult rituals with this poor guy who, you know, Ended up in a sort of insane asylum, in shambles. Not a not a, a, a healthy person after his relationship with Aleister Crowley, and and that's because Alistair Crowley was very ego driven in his occult um, aspirations. He wanted to be this great prophet of the new uh, the new aeon that he foresaw. So, that being said, how does a person like Crowley come to be? Right? How how do we how do we get a person like Crowley? Uh, I'll, I'll share Before my,
1: we go all go the way into it. <laughs> I have to tell my audience the episode you were on of Tim Foil hat is really one of the great episodes in podcasting because you can hear Sam go through this emotional trigger of a subject and you can hear you just try to relay the information unbiasedly. You're like, I'm just trying to give you the facts of the information, but In myself of my own shadow work of going through the whole journey of different subjects that I've looked into and not sometimes the most triggering subjects I wasn't ready to hear yet because I didn't have all the tools I didn't or you're looking into danger dangerous subject matter that you don't have all the protections you don't have all the like there's just things that people have to be ready for with certain amounts of knowledge I think and I liked Sam's emotional triggers of it because so frequently in life, our emotions make us not hear the um, information. We're so blocked. That's our like feminine is so blocked by it that we just can't hear the logical. We just can't hear it. And so I think this is one of those subjects that's so triggering to people. They're they like, man, I won't even listen to this episode because I won't even listen to a thing about Aleister Crowley. And it's just like the same as all these crazy subjects are kind of sometimes horrific conspiracies. It's like, no, there's so much information here and some things about Aleister Crowley, I think you could really relate to and some things are horrific. And I just try to get to this spot now objectivity of being objective that I can stand back and I could say, but now let me look at it from this way. Mm -hmm. Like I used to just be like bags out in the desert, but now I can actually look at it from a different way of like, okay, sex magic. I didn't even believe in that term when I first met about Alistair Crowley. So it's just like um, that episode for me is a really big deal on conspiracies because i think sometimes we have to get over our emotion of things to get real facts of it to hear them to have the ears to hear so you did such a good job i thought i knew you at that time too um when i listened to that episode and so it was like that anxiety of listening to my friend who (laughs) on a show at the time like oh my gosh and i could hear you like keeping your cool but i didn't even know you were nervous And I would have been like, I would have broken down, like, never mind, I can't even do this anymore. And I thought you did a good job at getting through the information. And so, um, yeah, I wore, uh, you know, my tinfoil hat shirt today for my video, uh, listeners for that episode. Cause in all this realm of podcasting, it's in really one of my top 10 that I think people need to go back and listen to. So,
0: yeah, I, I'm really, uh flattered to hear that because i don't uh i don't ever go into a podcast without feeling somewhat nervous and i'm especially nervous on a platform like sam's uh yeah i I got a lot of interesting comments after that tinfoil hat episode you know a lot of people were very upset with um my take on it and you know kind of parroted sam's argument and then there were others who championed my argument to the point where I disagreed with them. <laughs> they were <laughs> which like, hey, funny. hey, hey, hey. <laughs> yeah, which is it very interesting because we do have a lot of proponents of Crowley today, right? May- many more so than when he was alive. I think, you know, we have more proponents uh, when he's passed than when he was alive because he wasn't really a good friend to to many of the people that he was close with. So, um
1: And for anyone out there who comes across this, just because people are looking into things or they're educated about things, it doesn't mean they're a worshiper of things. Mm, (laughs) Like, look at Mark and his vibe and his chill. Like he, I I don't want to say he's not um, practicing at the Church of Thelema or the Golden Dawn, but...
0: Well, I could say I'm not, so... (laughs) Okay,
1: I didn't want to (laughs) speak for you, but it's just like a lot of the times I think people hear information about things and they assume like I want to know everything about space and flat Earth mm. so I can make my decision on it. Oh like, yeah. You oh, know yeah. I like love
0: that. Yeah. I'm really glad you said that because and even the part about what you said before about You know, I didn't even know that sex magic was a thing. Well, I think that's because we've been conditioned with holidays like Halloween and all of the movies that come along with that ritualized uh, event each year. Uh, We've been conditioned to think magic is something that is so much uh, removed, far removed from normal, ordinary life when. In actuality, every single day you experience some form of magic, you've just been conditioned to not notice it, right? I mean, our own dreams are the best example of that, uh, unless you're, you know, uh, like me and you're a pothead and don't remember your dreams. I mean, dreams are probably the most magical part of your your existence in a way, in a sort of funny uh, funny way of looking at it, they go unappreciated, certainly in our modern era, but uh We spend such a significant portion of our lives sleeping that we can't discount our dream life as a part of our human experience. And dreams are always magical. We have a magic logic in dreams. And what I mean by magic logic is like a logic that defies waking consciousness. And around the time that Aleister Crowley was uh, alive, this was all very much becoming a part of the mainstream. We have the occult revival, which was sort of after the Enlightenment, after the that Renaissance kind of of ideas uh, the freedom that people had after thousands of years of suppression uh, of these ideas, and there's a certain you know argument to be made that okay well maybe the church of rome and the catholics maybe they were burning people at the stake to protect us from the occult because you know we we don't we don't want the occult it's a bad thing it leads to bad things that argument is certainly somewhat substantial but then there's the historical Uh, approach which shows that the occult was alive in the church of rome and the church of vatican the vatican and you know the catholic church so you have to i guess take the like red and blue goggles off for this conversation and just you know because duality is very much a part of our existence but to your point we can't let it um supersede this I guess, dive into uh, the facts, right? Because the facts, we can have a certain opinion about them, but they are what they are. And the further back you go, the murkier it gets. And Crowley, you know, relatively, uh, you know, didn't exist that long ago. I actually share the birthday, uh well, somewhat. He was born October twelfth. I was born October eleventh. And I oh, sure, kind of sure. found that interesting. And Crowley himself had a, a similar thing like that. He Noticed that he was born the same year Eliphas Levi, famous occultist, died. And he was also born the same year that uh, famous Madame uh, Petrova Blavatsky started her Theosophical organization. So, you know, Crowley obviously didn't notice that immediately, but sometime after, when he was a young adult, he said to himself, Oh, wow, maybe this is a sign that I am meant to look into this magical stuff. And uh, being that he was born. To the Plymouth Brethren sect, which I'll share my screen now. We'll kind of yes, get yes,
1: yes, yes. A young Edward.
0: We'll get the the videos and whatnot, uh, or the the video listeners sort of tantalized here. So there's Crowley in his you know famous hat. Uh, here's the sort of quick one o one English occultist uh, intelligence agent. I added that in there. You will not find that in his proper Wikipedia, uh, because, well, I don't think they want you to really know that that was a big part of his life, but Tobias Churton and Richard Spence have almost proven that in their books, uh, ceremonial magician, poet, painter, novelist, and mountaineer. Uh, he founded the religion of Thelema, and he initiated the Aeon of Horus, at least in his mind. So, we know him as the Beast, and he got that from his mother, who had a very hard time keeping uh, tabs on him after their fa- his father died, right? So Crowley's father dies when he's 11 of tongue cancer. And it's interesting, at that period in time, you know, they did have uh, more modern treatments for cancer, and he was very, uh, well, he was adamant that his father's religious orientation killed him because the Plymouth Brethren sect, you know, discouraged any medicine from the doctors. They had, you know, so much faith that they decided, no, we're going to heal him with our faith. So when that didn't work, Crowley blamed uh, this religion, the Christians, for his father's passing at only eleven years old. I mean, this really changed him forever and is probably why, you know, he felt such a openness to the occult growing up in England where you had, you know, a variety of different sects of Christianity, uh, Different degrees of depravity, you know, some very chaste and some very, uh, you know, uh, not so chaste. I don't know the proper word, but
1: didn't he get called like, was there a painting or a book? Like, his mom pointed out something specifically and was like, This yeah. is why you're the beast.
0: Well, yeah, they were very much, you know, by the book, biblical Christians. So she just quoted scripture at him and called him the beast 666 because you know, allegedly Crowley was caught having sex with one of their housemaids at a, maybe like 13 or 14, you know, not exactly like unusually young to be sexually active, but pretty young for someone to become sexually active, especially with an adult. That's, that's a rumor. I haven't found that substantiated in his proper biographies, but, uh, Allegedly, that was, you know, either that or just his sort of rebellious, youthful nature that got him to be called the Beast. I've I mean, heard
1: the thing in between, too. Like, he mm. went to his uncle's, like, after his dad died. He went to his uncle's and his uncle had like the woods and um guns and shovels and axes and like he could be a boy for the first time, like play and rough house and learn things. And this is where he got like this huge skill set. And mm. so then he gets back to his mom's and she has a housekeeper. And so he sleeps with her and impregnates her and puts her on the streets because you can't right. be a pregnant unwed lady and that she's the first victim of Jack the Ripper. Right,
0: right, <laughs> right. And I, I did talk about that on on Sam's show and I, I didn't include that in the slides just because I hadn't found that corroborated more than once there's only one source for that information at least okay. you know original source but that still i mean it's it's a tantalizing fact a uh, possible fact it's said about crowley it definitely adds to his legend um you know i feel a little guilty and maybe silly of re- repeating stuff like that without actually going and seeing you know where it's cited uh, I think that's really important, especially if we're going to call ourselves conspiracy theorists, you know, because a lot of disinformation gets spread about. Um, and I unwittingly have, you know, pronounced disinformation at times. It's just it's just a byproduct of this type of research, unfortunately. But yeah, the the beast moniker, he definitely owned it, whether it was because of the, you know, sleeping with the maid or, or just his general, you know, rebelliousness. He, he owned that name uh, and really appreciated it. He actually, you know, it's funny. He, he did like the Bible. He did like Christianity. It wasn't that, you know, Christians killed his father. So now he hated Christianity. He hated the, the fact that his mother seemed like, you know, this, you know, unthinking slave to Christianity, whereas father had more, you know, prestige about him and his father really instilled this sense of aristocracy in him and you know Crowley was sort of like uh you know to himself in school he he went to several different schools uh one of which he was abused by a a guy that later he uh helped get arrested he his uncle who was a sort of bully to him uh you know did one good thing redeeming thing and helped him uh, out with that this guy champney a reverend who crowley claimed was a sadist and this is interesting because he goes to this school because he was misbehaving at other schools He, he has this very strict uh strict teacher reverend and crowley gets out of it right where where maybe mean parents would have left him in that school his parents took him out of it and not only did they take him out of it they actually got that reverend in trouble so you know this shows not only is Crowley sort of in an upper echelon of society where his family has some sway uh, but he also has this sort of calculating manipulative nature to him uh, and one has to wonder if you know this sort of sadistic masochistic element of his sex magic came from experiences like this as a child where he was probably beaten or whipped or something by this uh, reverend at a boarding school Uh, definitely helped him, uh, justify his, you know, foray into the seedy underground of London. He got gonorrhea at a very young age after meeting uh, a friend who kind of took him around the, uh, underbelly of that area. And that, uh, that's kind of where his teenage years end and his young adulthood begins. Uh, he, Finds a love for mountaineering at that time when he kind of uh, is at, I forget which school, it says right here, Eastbourne College.
1: I think Um, it's interesting too, like he was like a chess champion. mm, He was extremely intelligent, you know, because I don't know if IQ tests are real. I don't know really what is a mark of intelligence, but if you were a chess champion, there is a way that you understand theory of things and that your brain works that it's like he he did understand next level of things. This chess comes up in a lot of these people that I look into of recent um which by the way I've seen you uh with Juan and stuff and doing that kind of research with Paranoid American and the John D. and the it's like there's so many other characters besides the Alistair Crowley just to uh go off on but I always find the chess to be um very a curious link between all of them but I do think there's a game theory idea with it
0: hmm. yeah I I really like that I didn't put that uh Put much thought into that but yeah he he was a chess player that was something that he spent a lot of time uh doing at Cambridge he he also spent a lot of time with prostitutes and uh he didn't spend much time with his classmates he was sort of uh, again to himself uh when he was at school and you know I think he he thought of himself as above other people to some degree whether that was because of his you know family I mean he came from a sort of wealthy family but it's a, it's a complicated social status scene in britain at the time his family were were brewers which was looked down upon it wasn't considered like an aristocracy thing to made a, to have made a lot of money selling beer right it was considered like the commoners drank beer you know the r- aristocrats didn't drink beer so uh he he kind of kept to himself although he did feel inwardly like uh I'm I'm special he wouldn't have got that kind of recognition from his peers uh especially when they you know heard his name uh Crowley or C- Crowley which is how it was pronounced um because Crowley was also associated with the beer there was Crowley beer practically across the country. Uh, it was, one it was like
1: the- having m- a lot of money and being in a private school, but your parents are like mafia, <laughs> you know, like, you know, they're it's like, like uh, a trash
0: company or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah. That's, and, and I think that's, um, it's interesting too, that at Cambridge, he allegedly gets tapped or pulled into these espionage circles, which would have been something that was very appropriate for someone uh of a certain social status like spies at that time were not necessarily recruited solely from the military or like you know militias or or even people who were going into politics they would take you know literature students journalists you know all these sort of different types of people and and have them on the uh, attache for an L- intelligent officer you know they'd serve as an agent uh, even if it was only once or twice like it was sort of like a um, like a service to the intelligence, uh, well, I'm sorry. It was like a service, a patriotic service of the like upper echelon, right? You weren't low enough to go and grab a gun and be, you know, enlisted, but you were still patriotic to to serve. So you served in a different way. And you
1: might run one or two operations,
0: right? As a as a spy, you know, you have like a, a you know, a contact. Who was an official officer, like someone who actually went through the military to be a spy or train spies? But you yourself, as a spy, were not someone who like was enlisted as a soldier. So Crowley, being a, a, a spy, I think
1: actually even like the truth in plain sight kind of of this this day of how you would use somebody of an upper echelon is like Sean Penn being the last person with El Chapo or. Um, uh, Pamela Anderson being the last person with Julian Assange. Well, you know, you have that little mix between where they also say like certain bands are just drug running, Mm. you know, they go on these big tours because no one checks their tour buses.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And this was at a time, you know, when we didn't have the celebrity culture that we do now, the, the focus was still on royalty, politicians, maybe the musicians, but again, like... Maybe art-
1: like Houdini, maybe Charlie Chaplin. Right, <laughs> like, yeah. Know, like the, arts, maybe.
0: <laughs> the arts were still a thing of, like, high society, and and yeah, entertainment was, like, carnival-esque still, and, and yeah, it, it's interesting to see how, like, Crowley influenced that 60s generation of you know, what would become kind of like fringe celebrities, but uh we're not there yet. So <laughs> Crowley has a kind of changing a turning point in Stockholm and some people explain this as uh him having a his first same sex uh re- you know, sexual experience, right? And and you gotta keep in mind at that time homosexuality was not uh wasn't just frowned upon, it was illegal. It was you could be arrested uh if someone were to find out that you were in a, a same sex relationship. So that was sort of the the um I think It was a it was a turning point for him mentally, but it was also like an initiation into something that to him was extremely important. And it's even written about like an initiation. I don't know if he was actually initiated into a certain order, but you do have this, um, you know, homoeroticism that it it, it's sort of it's present in various secret societies that Crowley might may or may not have been exposed to in a place like Stockholm uh you know you have to imagine some of these secret societies were associated with sailing and the the trade right the commercial uh mercantile class this this group of of sailors and and you know you have a bunch of men on a ship with no ladies that kind of thing is going to happen and some people some authors have even written that it's a ritualized thing where the captain has you know a a cabin boy and this is the maybe the pedophilic aspect to it all Uh, and at this time Crowley he was a fan of, of poetry. He was reading this sort of homosexual, homoerotic poetry. Uh, I don't know if Oscar Wilde was much older than him, but he was certainly around later in the story. And that kind of comes into play because Oscar Wilde famously was, uh, put on trial for his homosexuality and he was a poet and a mystic as well. So, you know, Homosexuality was sort of a a thing within this mystic community. That's something that uh, maybe we don't think about nowadays, considering like the political changes that have gone on. And now it's obviously more uh, open and accepted, and especially so in the past five or so years. At least the you know politically active folks are very. And rep- I've
1: thought about this. I was thinking about it with Aleister Crowley in general, and just trying to contradict my own thoughts with certain things and like play just thinking okay what if he wasn't a homosexual and everybody always has that idea of like you know you build one bridge you're not a big bridge builder but you suck one cock you're a cocksucker and so it is that idea even in the homosexual community and it's so weird like if everyone just thinks about it in their world um they you can be A girl drunk in college and make out with 10 girls and no one will ever think you're a lesbian, but the same thing doesn't happen for men. But take the sexuality out of it all or you kind of have to leave it there. But if you kind of take the idea of whatever the straightest female is, it isn't. For the straightest female, if somebody held a gun to her head and was like, You have to let this woman eat your pussy right now. I'm sorry if you don't talk like this on your podcast, but you <laughs> um you have to do this. It like for that woman, it morally, if she was like of certain religions, it might be hard for her, but it, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Whereas for a man to have to be the straightest man in the world, whatever that means. And I'm not, you know, if Kinsey Scales real or not. Um, for him to have to go through the same act to separate himself from his flesh and his morals, there—that's where this level of magic comes in—an intention that could you be doing this? Because then, when you actually think of anal sex, now it doesn't matter if you're a woman or a man. It is the, it is this quote-unquote portal that is unnatural, unnatural for us to do this thing. It doesn't matter what flesh suit you are in this lifetime. So magically, uh, it it just seems like to separate yourself from your flesh um, in ritual, there's levels to it of things that I'm sure you'll get into later on with other magical stuff. But just a philosophy that I was kind of thinking of separating it, like, could this not be a homosexuality? sexual thing could this just be a magic thing of a way of like no this body doesn't matter i can feel pain in this way i can feel a bite in this way i can cut myself in this way i own this flesh given
0: the the cultural suppression of it it would have been akin to like you know breaking the law by doing graffiti in a certain way, or, or like, you know, stealing a car, you know, I mean, to a certain extent, as far as society was concerned, if you just, if you remove the very personal, you know, romantic aspects of it, potentially, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm sure the thrill of it would have been, you know, Breaking some, the law, something like that, right? I mean, you have to imagine, and also uh, the, you're risking, all of society exiling or shaming you too i mean there's obviously a certain thrill there i mean i'm not (laughs) in the kink communities no
1: and me either i just i'm trying to like hit it from all (laughs) Yeah,
0: (laughs) he's he's a part of this like you know um open like these things were present in the human psyche and and figures like crowley kind of open them open the door to them and we're very much a part of this you know now new modern world that we're in. Uh, for worse or for better. And I think it's odd because Crowley politically was very conservative uh, and (laughs) the people who champion his sort of like sexual openness would have totally despised his political and racial uh, opinions. I mean, for one thing, he was a white supremacist who regarded, you know, anybody who wasn't in the upper classes as, as, you know, less than even white people right but you know when he traveled he'd go to china or he'd go to india he wouldn't ever fraternize with anyone below a certain class level he regarded them as you know subhuman he he writes like that in some of his writings which again he's a person of his time this wasn't like his invention to think that way it was a product of the the time he was in very much like the suppression of uh homosexuality was a a you know, a uh, just a thing of the time that yes. he was in. So to him, maybe it was a more of a radical spiritual experience because of that as well. Like, and it wasn't so much that he was, you know, naturally inclined to be a uh, homosexual because he never, um, you know, he he did marry women. I mean, it wasn't that he only exclusively was in relationships with men.
1: Well, And we just blanket the Werner von Braun, uh, Parsons, Disney, and we're all like homosexuals. But <laughs> I was just thinking like, I am obviously not a straight man, but I am a lesbian. And for me, if somebody was like, okay, the next part, if I was in some fraternal order, sor- sorority or something, and they were like, the next part of your thing is we're going to go to the desert and you're going to get anal penetration by a man it would be just as breaking for me as i imagine you so it's like at some point it's like there's a separation of even a gay and straight of whatever it is they're practicing in because i don't believe all these dudes that were that are in this high level occult, yeah that may or may not come up later on in this conversation i don't think they were all homosexual
0: Right. Like, and really, really, but I
1: do think they were all practicing levels of magic that might have involved homosexual sex. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I'm really appreciating your perspective and, and having that uh, perspective to contribute because, yeah, it, I mean, as a straight white man, it's a touchy subject for me to exclusively comment on. Uh, but together, we definitely can have <laughs> uh, a different perspective. And and yeah, I agree. I'm not going into some desert. No, place.
1: we'd hold hands and I'd make eye contact with you and I would have tears come down my eyes. And like,
0: we'd hold hands like, and break we out of there. We'd embrace we later point.
1: and we'd be like, we don't have to tell anyone <laughs>
0: Oh man. Well, I mean, after you, you, we get to the later portion of this conversation, (laughs) I don't know how excited you're going to be about that. I hope I
1: become magical. (laughs) I hope my wand gets delivered in the mail.
0: (laughs) Well, and that is, I mean, that's a really good point to make because if you look at the more modern takes on these subjects, what do you have? You have tantric sex, you have like this sort of kundalini yoga that can border on uh cult-like sexual activity um you know I've Moon seen,
1: children and, like where well, people are yeah. actually doing their full sexual thing and, you know have a child
0: we're here now so i'll just say it now crowley actually was not a fan of uh parsons or hubbard he was alive until 1947 so he was he was sort of i mean he was at the end of his life and had done a lot of drugs heroin and and other drugs by then so you know his mind wasn't the same as it was when he initially started writing all this stuff but he wasn't uh he was not like a proponent of their moon child ritual he actually said Uh they were fools and that they didn't know what they were getting themselves into and I think that's coming from someone who had probably been beaten down quite a bit by his um you know uh flippancy with the occult I mean not to put it lightly you you're playing with these dark huge immense catastrophic at times forces and asking them to be a part of your life i mean it's it's going to chew you up and spit you out and this isn't my opinion i'm i'm standing on the shoulders of many different yeah. you know researchers who have said things like this and and Crowley himself probably would have said it if he had a sober mm-hmm. mind to, to do so but uh You know, like I said, Crowley, he got around, he had a lot of, uh, prostitutes that were part of his regular life. I think he said something like, uh, you shouldn't, a man shouldn't go 48 hours without having sex. Uh, so, you know, he was always focused on, on sex and, uh. He paid the cost. He had syphilis and gonorrhea, and and at the time, you know, <laughs> I mean, historically speaking, if you got one of those diseases, it could have a, a a bad effect on your mind. I mean, look at the guy who who killed all those horror, you know, killed all those you know innocent people in the Congo. Uh, the Dutch, you know, royal who had you know venereal diseases and whatnot. I mean, he was completely insane.
1: Oh, yeah. It's like an. I worked in nursing homes for a long time, and it's a really well-known thing that any old person, if they just get a UTI or just a bladder infection, something that seems so little, it will make them go crazy. They will start like tripping. Wow. And so I can only imagine what long-term set in of sex- these sexually transmitted diseases from back then or infections, what yeah, would no. happen mentally to people.
0: Yeah, and, uh, you know, Crowley didn't live an especially long life. I mean, he could have lived until the 60s if he was healthier. Um, but, uh, But yeah, so Crowley had a couple of interesting and unaccounted for trips to Russia that Sort of give away the fact that he was most likely helping out the British Secret Service. Russia at the time, you know, this is early 1900s, so there's all this, you know, uh, revolutionary activity going on in Russia. Britain was very worried about what would happen with Russia, and Britain had their fingers in almost every portion of the world trying to control and manage things i mean they had agents and officers throughout all of their colonies so crowley wasn't like you know part of some top level spy division he was more of a run-of-the-mill spy i think that probably became privy to some secret society stuff that you know the average person wouldn't have and and that enticed him to to go further but uh
1: Do you think he hung out with Rasputin at all during this time or any of that kind of click?
0: Well, I mean, this is Tobias Churton's claim, and I trust his research. He says that Rasputin, and actually Richard Spence says this too, that Rasputin wasn't even in the same part of Russia when Crowley was there. And Crowley was very uh, young and still naive at that time. So if he did meet Rasputin, it wouldn't have impressed Rasputin at all. Uh, I think that guy was like having children at the time that Crowley was going to Russia and he lived somewhere like very far in the east of Russia, not anywhere near the Western frontier.
1: And do you think Crowley at all was enough into the occult? Because I know he like the pyramids and stuff later on. Do you think he was enough into the architecture of it that he might have and elite enough that he might have, and this is like a far-fetched breadcrumb, have been onto tatarian building idea that he might have been searching for other kind of architectural magic or things or he wasn't that deep yet.
0: No, I don't think Crowley was concerned with architecture at all. I mean, if you look at his what he's written about, he's very much focused on ceremonial magic which, mm-hmm. you know, it does involve being in a temple and having temple space and but that is a, a a conceptual temple it's not like it doesn't have a physical specification that's required he he did do the channelings in the pyramid so obviously he had some sort of uh knowledge of what the pyramids might do but if anything that would have been more for the historical metaphysical mythological qualities uh not just the the you know i i mean i'm not i'm not trying to rain on the tartaria parade i just feel like a lot of the tartaria stuff uh is it's uh it's exclusive to a specific part of pre-columbian american history that we don't know a lot about so uh it really doesn't have a, a any pull on on crowley who lived in you know the late 19th and early 20th century by then tartaria and the great reset would have been properly hidden away if we're to believe that the tartaria stuff was r- written out of history right i mean well, aren't
1: he, the world fairs come up late like in the next period of Crowley's yeah, life
0: i mean the world the first world fair was in the the 1700s. So the World's Fair were definitely uh, around when he was alive. And I think he even visited a couple of the World's Fairs. Um, But that being said, the World's Fairs, in my opinion, are a byproduct of the growing corptocracy, uh, corporate power system that was, you know, a byproduct of the Industrial Revolution and the consolidation of power uh, of Europe from the traditionally religious royal structures to a more economic university uh intelligentsia type structure right the world's fair is is like the the royal family saying okay we're not going to hide behind the the reins of the the throne anymore we're going to hide behind the reins of the dollar we're going to hide behind the reins of industry we're going to control industry and you know the the world's fair was pivotal in bringing forth this industrial enslavement that we're all in i mean if you look at ford and his idea of you know pay for your car so then you can pay for the gas to come to work to keep your car running i mean the whole thing is just a a ploy to keep you stuck uh with one you know With one company, right? I mean, obviously that didn't pan out to what he wanted, this utopia of like enslavement under a corporate power structure, but it's on its way there in a more diverse way. I mean, yeah. I always think they
1: two birds, one stone. I think they're doing exactly what you're saying, like where they... They use it to like uh, make look at this popular idea of these rubber tires by Firestone on this Ford car and Flagler and Edison. They're going to drive cross country and it's so right. dreamy. Like they totally do this and like look at this beautiful building and this electricity. We're going to run into your town and look how well it works like they sell the ideas through it. But then the like idea of like stolen technology also being turned off with it. Mm. um i didn't know if there's like like is this the time where the great reset kind of happened like this tink 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 where they like stole some and would this elite class have a little bit of the info like have a little bit of the like we go still party in these buildings that we know are this but i didn't even know if he was there yet Crowley,
0: crowley definitely had um like many people at the time An idea of Atlantis as a great lost civilization. And some people even thought about like Shambhala being this like hidden uh, civilization that was, you know, somewhere on the planet that hadn't been discovered or acknowledged yet. So those kind of ideas that uh, were later evolved into the Tartaria uh, propaganda, (laughs) because a lot of it is disinformation, unfortunately, as interesting as it is. Um,
1: I like ancient technology, I like so, yeah, the technology tech. it's yeah. like the, the just blanket idea because it's like when Tatarian, Lemurian, Atlantean, uh, Egyptian uh, Aztec like Aztecs it's like once you start breaking up these civilizations, it's like oh there's stolen technology and architecture everywhere and civilizations have been built on top of civilizations everywhere but it it's not all just this one thing.
0: Yeah. Well, I think Crowley, you know, Crowley, unfortunately, would have been on the side of the folks who were keeping a lot of that type of information away from us. It wasn't his interest though, like the technology and science. I mean, he he was interested in chemistry when he was in school, but only because it related to alchemy and he recognized that. I mean, he was consumed with his own power and, uh, you know, theosophy at the time Was obsessed with this idea that we human beings are like super super supermen and superwomen that are like just in a state of amnesia and we don't recognize our true powers. Which, you know, it's not uh, an idea invented by the Theosophists. It was just sort of like repackaged by them. Um, But when you look at that concept, it made way for everything in our media superheroes i mean you you're familiar with chris Knowles. he's written a book uh our gods wear spandex and how they use all these mythological concepts veiled as like superheroes and then present them to us in superhero movies well crowley was one of these thinkers that really like brought those ideas to literature to printed paper uh and inspired you know the guys that were drawing the comic books and in, in the 60s and so on but You know Crowley's influences; they were more arcane, more obscure. Some like things that we would consider like historically uh, relevant to esotericism, but like hard to get into. Like like Crowley, I think did a service in the sense that he helped make a lot of these arcane, uh, very dense, uh, cryptic metaphysical treatises and occult you know texts from the medieval and earlier periods he made them more approachable to the modern mind and 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 tried to take what he would of that in a sort of bruce lee uh jeet kundo kind of way and take what he could get the most out of right and I think that's a very modern way of doing things. Uh, he
1: seasoned the meat. He took this like raw yeah. meat and then just like seasoned it and made it palatable.
0: Right. And, and you know, as I have here on the slide, uh, A.E. Waite, who was a sort of scholar of the occult and esoteric world before Crowley was uh, around. He might have been alive when Crowley was around. I think they wrote letters to one another but that inspired him along with uh, a couple other you know strange books like the cloud upon the sanctuary by Carl von Eckhart's so like things that we wouldn't see in our bookstores today things that exist in like rare archives and and book collections but uh one thing that is you have them no.
1: <laughs> oh, you seem like you have rare archive and book collection.
0: I, have, I do have rare books. I do. I do. I just wouldn't want to tell you which ones, but uh, I can't. You're
1: like, I don't want those people coming to my house. Yeah, that I'll, know tell, rare you books. After. I'll no. tell you after our
0: recording. <laughs> what I, got, I trust you. Uh, but so one thing I do, I can't skip past is around this time, Crowley wrote a series of poetry that is just really disturbing, especially to... Like our modern sensibility to a certain extent, after the whole you know pedo gate stuff. I mean, it it makes Crowley seem very much like uh, someone who would have inspired the Kinsey in pedophile pediatric kind of creeps that came very much after Crowley was dead, but you know. I don't know if, again, that was so much Crowley's invention as it was a a byproduct of the the subculture that he was a part of. I mean, homosexuality was illegal, so, you know. Petit. What you're doing you as
1: thy will to keep yeah. pushing. It's like if you're not yeah. homosexual and practicing an anal sex, what's the next line? What's the yeah. next line? What's the next line? Well,
0: and, and I'm no I, in no way an expert, but from what I've heard through various podcasts, comedy, otherwise, just cultural interest, it seems like there's a propensity in the male gay culture for like very young men to kind of get involved, maybe young with older, much older men than twinks. St- Yeah, and and I think that was a a theme back then and something he wrote about in his uh, poetry, and it definitely makes him look like a a pedophile. I mean, that's why when I had that conversation with Sam, I had to bring that up because when you look at uh, Tobias Churton, who spent a lot of time writing about him, uh, Tobias, he takes his life and looks at his life, but he doesn't he doesn't take a look at that writing. And of course, Tobias isn't an all seeing being. He can't like go back in time and know everything Crowley did. He's just going off of what was available in writing and what he can pick up. So I'm sure there were things that Crowley did in secret in the dark that we would, you know, think are, are heinous and gross. I mean, but, I think that's true for a lot of famous people unfortunately. Uh and I think that's something that people have to come to grips with is that to degrees everyone has skeletons in their closet and that is in no way a justification for something as disgusting as, you know, abusing a child, but the fact that he's written about that in his poetry, I think especially at that young age, shows that maybe something either happened to him or he was present in a scene where that was more accepted. And and again, he was somewhat of an elite. He went to Cambridge, and we are told that the royals have a certain uh, propensity to not only abuse children, but straight up kill them. So uh, I don't know if Crowley maybe was taking some of the things that he had learned from that atmosphere and packaging them into his early poetry. But it's from someone with our perspective of like, you know, the, uh, Situation in the Franklin scandal and everything that we've heard about since Pizzagate. I mean, Jimmy
1: Savile Jimmy uh-huh.
0: is the best. I mean, thank you for bringing that up, because that is specifically in England where he was sometime, obviously, after Crowley had passed away. But still, I mean, not very sh- long after Crowley passes away, you have this J- Jimmy Savile guy uh, kind of becoming like a pop figure, pop icon over there. So yeah, there's, there's a connection. Uh, I think, you know, authors like, uh, Johnny Cerucci might be, or like, uh, there's another guy, Philip Fairbanks, you know, these two guys, they have the stomach that I do not have to go and do that kind of research. I would be totally appalled to go and, and, try to track that down also I'm, I'm not a private detective or anything like that so i don't have the formal skills to to like go and look at something uh like that but from my armchair research perspective i do think there is a case to be made that crowley had a strange uh sexual uh appetite and maybe that involved people under age But then again, we're talking about someone who was born in the late 1800s. So the sexual laws and everything was very different back then. I mean, back then there were people who were married to 12 year olds, you know, by arranged marriage. So uh, it was a different world. Uh, That being said.
1: And that was happening in America. (laughs) <laughs> like yeah. that well, wasn't like just any country like in yeah. the early 1900s um 13 year olds and 14 year olds were getting married in this country
0: yeah so and in England probably would have been very similar and you know this is all we're looking at Crowley so far as he was in England and and he kind of traveled a lot um being a mountain climber and as someone who's hiked to A couple mountains, it's definitely a spiritual experience, you know, getting to the top. So I think, you know, there is a benevolent side of him too. I mean, he wasn't exclusively doing things in the dark. He had normal interests like mountaineering and he was pretty good at it given that he was born, uh, with, I think some sort of chronic illness. And then he also developed asthma. Uh, mountaineering was probably really helpful for him to get over that. And, uh, yeah, I mentioned Crowley was a spy, an agent, and and Tobias Churton and Rick Spence suggest that Crowley's foray into the Golden Dawn was not so much because of his occult interests, but more to spy and maybe even disrupt the Order of the Golden Dawn.
1: Did he hike Everest?
0: No, he made an attempt on K2, which is one of the himalayan mountains i don't think it's the tallest himalayan mountain but yeah he did uh he did he did hike up k2 which i don't think he successfully made it to the top
1: heard different tales of it i was um
0: in the slides it's oh
1: perfect i don't want to fast forward you it's okay a little later
0: yeah it's a little that's a little later in his okay
1: i'll totally wait go on go on
0: (laughs) so uh (laughs) So he meets this Julian Baker guy, and it's kind of interesting the way he meets Julian Baker. It seems like he knew that Julian Baker was a part of the Order of the Golden Dawn before he met him, right? Which suggests that Crowley was a spy sent to Switzerland to meet Baker and then be invited into the Order of the Golden Dawn. Because he, he goes to this uh, you know place where... This guy was, and he makes this big, you know, impression on everybody as a a guy who knows something about alchemy. But when he's giving his sort of public statements of like, yeah, another cool thing about alchemy, he's intentionally saying things incorrectly to get Baker's attention so baker then approaches him and says hey you know you were a little bit wrong about that alchemy let me give you a private lesson you know he gains his confidence and then joins the order of the golden uh, uh, golden dawn so you know obviously i'm not the guy to suggest that but richard spence suggests that uh you know this was something that he did as an intelligence agent and it and it makes sense because uh very soon into his um time in the golden dawn he excels he gets to a place where a lot of people are um you know kind of con- contempt they have contempt for him they're also kind of feeling like who is this guy who does he think he is and i did leave out that after crowley's father passed away uh you know was left a whole bunch of money he didn't inherit the money until he was old enough to get it at 18 but he had enough money to where he didn't need to work. He was completely able to, you know, finance his mountaineering trips and be, uh, like a full-time golden Dawn member, probably padded his way with some cash, uh, to get up the degrees faster. Right. So, uh, he kind of greased the wheels and I think that probably upset people. And, uh, he took a liking or Mathers took a liking to him and basically
1: of being the trust fund kid though. I Mm. feel like there's a lot of hate, all the hate that goes on Alistair Crowley. When I go on my contrarian, I'm like, okay, you end up with all the money in the world tomorrow. So many people out there listening to this or in the last few years have been on spiritual quests. If you had all the money in the world, maybe you would go meditate in the pyramids. Maybe you would go hike the mountain to sit at the top and do a ritual. Maybe you would pay to um go sit in the coolest Russian building. It's like maybe that stuff too, like just a kid with money that it was also on some sort of spiritual quest. Oh, yeah. Sometimes I think some of this stuff, wouldn't you do it too if you had the money? <laughs>
0: well, and there's certainly a case to be made that Crowley felt like he was a, uh you know, a special person, someone who was uh, meant to be doing these things. Like I said, he noticed that the year of his birth, these two very strange occult figures happened to be doing very important things. One of them dying, the other one creating their famous foundation. Um, So yeah, Crowley definitely, I mean, he had like a lot of mobility. He had sincere interest in these things. But he also had, you know, patriotic kind of arist- aristocratic bent to him, right? And this is where the spy craft comes in because, you know, although he you know seems like a loose renegade later in his life. Early in his life, he's very much someone who's like for king, queen, and country, like mm. God, God, king, queen, and country, like that's his thing, and and he doesn't, uh, again, he doesn't totally dislike Christianity. He he uses some of the the things he's learned from his biblical lessons in his occult understanding, you know, because the, the two are very yeah. similar in a way.
1: I've heard the spy thing as, like, one of the words getting thrown around Crowley. Never have I really, like, concentrated on it as the bent. Um, Even bringing up the Jimmy Jimmy Savile, it's interesting because if you just take away all what you just think Jimmy Savile is and you equate him exactly to Ghislaine Maxwell Epstein. And you're like, oh, he's a... Or even Hugh Hefner. Oh, this is a honey pot. Or this is a honey trap. And this is just building blackmail, however that builds. And it, right. you know, whether the person starts out looking for the thing or if we can just get him drunk enough to put him in bed with the thing, the right. blackmail happens either way. So looking at him with the same slant, of just like spy gathering intelligence gathering and also kind of infiltrating these magic orders which we see every military and intelligence agency later on use all these kind of crazy techniques like you're talking about looking at it with just this angle you could even be like oh Epstein, Savile, Crowley these kind of oh, they're all spies. They're just levels of spies. Even maybe they might not be practicing the magic as much as setting up other people for the blackmail.
0: Right. And it's important to note that Crowley is not exclusively, you know, the sole spy occultist. There are other very famous occultists at this time who also did spy work. So you're very much on the right trail. And I'm so glad you're here to kind of, jump back and forth with me on this because that's a that's a great point to to make. And I think it's important in our modern context to understand that, you know, guys like Crowley very much became an inspiration, obviously, even for guys like Ian Fleming, who was directly related to the CIA, created James Bond and based uh what's his name? Some character. I forget the the character's name, but he he based a um, sort of pompous, bombastic, evil villain off of Crowley. Uh, I forget the guy's last name, but he's a villain in bon- in one of the Bond films, and it's directly based on Crowley. So yeah, and we... even
1: the 007, does, isn't that something-something hook? Like, isn't the actual, like they say, that uh, symbol, the 007? It might hmm. be slick dissonant. Um, I feel like they just have this quick, like, oh, 007, it's the blank, 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 and it's yeah. like... A, yeah, well, so if I think of it, I'll put it in the, I'll edit no, it.
0: No, I, I mean, as far as I know, first of all, I'll say shout out to Slick Dissident. He has a whole other way of deciphering these things that I can't, you know, comment on. But I'll say from like the the uh, mainstream sort of perspective, 007 is a nod to John D who would use that uh, code name or just way to sign certain things is 007. And also seven is very symbolic, right? I mean, esoterically seven, you have seven chakras, you have seven senses to a certain extent, you have, um, you know, seven sacred sites. I mean, there's something with the number seven. Yeah. But anyways, we have Crowley here kind of infiltrating the... Order of the Golden Dawn. And it's at a time when there is a group of British folks who are sort of loyal to one strain of royalty. Uh, and they went by the Carlists. That was just sort of what we call them hi- historically. And they were trying to get behind this guy, Carl, Don Carl, who was uh, one of the Kings of Spain uh, to take over. Uh, And I think Spain had recently lost a major battle or war with England. So, you know, there were some people who were maybe um, legitimists towards that Spanish Royal cause who were a part of the order of the golden dawn. And, you know, this is very interesting to point out. I, I don't have that much information off the top of my head to talk about on this, but I will say that you know Spain is a hotbed for occultism. You have to keep in mind, especially with the Tartarian conversation, the Tartars, the Barbars, the, the Moors, right? They invaded Spain. And a lot of the things that they brought from that uh Ottoman Empire. Islamic Enlightenment period into Spain and into the very, you know, suppressed European consciousness, those things remained under the guise of secret society, uh, Templar, you know, this sort of thing. So, you know, that royal family may have had, you know, direct interest in groups like the Order of the Golden Dawn. I mean, I don't, I can't back that up, but I do think that. You know, when we look at these royal families and their political orientations and then their, you know, spiritual orientations, there's this like third factor of like the secret society fraternal connection that usually goes unnoticed and it was extremely prevalent for people to be a part of orders like this back then. So to have Crowley again in this position wouldn't have been that strange for the time. Um, but Crowley certainly was a strange guy who, you know, unlike many other spies wrote a great deal about what he was doing. Uh, although he didn't really write much about his own spy craft, you can kind of imply it when you look at You know, his records of where he traveled and what he was doing uh, when he was there. And we're about to get into a little bit more of his travels, but. Um, You
1: could totally see why the royals would want it, though. I mean, look at the artifacts that they wear, uh, the relics that they hold, the uh, crowns, where the jewels are placed. I mean, even if anyone studies anything about stones of what we know them just metaphysically, or if they're into crystals or things like that, imagine what these stones and these uh, things are bringing in. So even in the idea of Indiana Jones, I always bring up the trilogy Indiana Jones, they're in search of relics. It's not just Hitler that was looking for the spear of destiny or, you know, it's like they want the Ark of the Covenant. They want all these things, um, even if they were things before the Bible wrote about them. They want these things. Uh, there's, There's power in them. So I imagine, even spy craft wise, if there was a magical order, like if we were a witches in a coven and you heard rumor as the king that we could create gold out of wheat, you would come find us. And so I think in that kind of way, you would want to infiltrate these every magic. Anyone that said they were doing anything, you would want to know if they could do it.
0: Right. Right. And you know, our country was founded by guys who were a part of these sorts of orders. Uh, uh the thing that I've been researching before I Sort of stepped away briefly to look at Crowley, is where I'm from, Connecticut, and how that fits into the founding of our country and some of the occult, esoteric things that have happened in the colonies that are not really mentioned. So maybe we'll have another conversation about that later on. But with Crowley, you know, I think, yes. His generation was very much, like, in this world that was appropriate for the time. He, he wasn't, like, somebody who is in, like, these, like, back corners of, like, obscurity. I mean, there were groups like this present, moving, shaking, with... You know, boasting memberships of other notable people, Crowley wouldn't have been a notable person at that time. He's really only become a notable person uh, afterwards. His his public reputation only got worse as he got more famous during his actual life uh, because he was person against his time I mean he was into all this stuff that was traditionally kept a secret and kept amongst the lodge amongst the sacred temple and and not you know shared to the the profane masses so uh back to Crowley in London and as the Golden Dawn sort of fragmented with his friendship with Mathers Mathers told him to go back to the London Temple and take it over which basically resulted in the guys like kicking crowley out you know they overpowered him and then they the, the court ruled in favor of them crowley and and mathers got sort of excommunicated from the order of the golden dawn and you know they effectively infiltrate crowley effectively infiltrated the golden dawn and kind of killed it in a way it didn't really ever do anything much uh after that that you know, it, it's time as an influential uh, group had crested, right? It, it very much like it's only remembered for Crowley and what he's done with it, right? So he kind of took a lot of the things he learned from the Golden Dawn and put it into his future group that he called uh, the uh, our Agent, Argentum or something like that. And, and some people say, you know, it's supposed to mean like the age of Atlantis or something. So you kind of made me think of that when you said like the hidden technology and all that. Maybe we'll we'll get into that further. But uh, Crowley kind of travels around a lot after this time, and he goes to Mexico where he does peyote with some natives. And he also becomes a part of the Mexican Freemasons. He gets initiated into the uh, Mexican Freemason group. And uh, again, you know, the Carlists, they were sort of against the British royalty, established royalty in favor of Spain. So it makes sense that his next mission would be to go to Mexico and infiltrate uh, this Freemasonry because the British had a lot of interest in Mexican oil and they were successful. Crowley potentially swayed the guys in the Freemason Lodge to be pro-British, and when it came time for the Mexican oil... To be sold to certain prospects, the British companies won those prospects. So uh, it's fair to say that while Crowley was doing peyote and learning about, you know, maybe dark shamanism in the <laughs> Mexico, he was also like doing kind of political espionage type of things, infiltrating these secret groups uh, for political reasons. And I think that's fascinating because we don't typically blend those two things, you know, at least when we look at them historically. We tend to think of like, oh, well, the theosophists and the spiritualists, they were interesting, and but they were like hobbyists. They didn't have an impact on, any, any, on culture, which I think is wrong. You know, a lot of very influential people were a part of these groups, and Crowley kind of proves that with his uh, with his life and where he ended up, so he traveled a lot. He sailed from Mexico to uh, from San Francisco to Hawaii. Uh, Walter Bosley writes about some time that he spent in San Bernardino, California, and I've never been there, but apparently there's some weird stuff that goes on in San Bernardino. There's a strange fault line ley line going on over there. So if people want to learn about Crowley and his potential. Involvement in these unsolved crimes in San Bernardino, you should check out uh, the Empire of the Wheel book by uh, Walter Bosley. It's fascinating. I really think that book is is worth reading. Uh, doesn't go into Crowley too much, but it, it's interesting to think if he was involved in these unsolved crimes, you know, what was he doing? With the knowledge that he gained from the Order of the Golden Dawn and the Mexican Freemasons and, and you know, blending that with his spy craft. Bosley also talks about how back then in California, there were several different espionage groups. I was surprised to find out that there are people from the country of India, what was then called Hindustan who were espionage agents in california doing all kinds of stuff i had no idea and it's just fascinating but uh crowley then goes to paris and uh, becomes a part of the art scene he uh gets kind of used as a model for the character of Oliver Hato in a, a novel called The Magician that would become kind of influential, influential in uh, the film scene. Uh, we have Crowley then meeting Rose, who would bear his first two children and work with him in the pyramid uh, to summon this entity that Crowley called his guardian angel. So uh, before we go there, though, I just wanted to point out uh, Crowley has this quote that's very, I mean, I'm not going to read it because I don't want to <laughs> repeat this, but I mean, folks can kind of read this if they're watching on the video. And uh, for the listening audience, I'll just say it's a very derogatory paragraph about why women had no value to him other than to be sex objects. So whether that was because he was actually uh uh, homosexual, or because he was just a bigot—I mean, I don't know—but uh, he, I think he, he, he had a very immature relationship with his sexual body. Like he clearly had no control. You know, someone who needs to have sex every forty-eight hours, even if that costs them, you know, getting gonorrhea and syphilis and sleeping with prostitutes. But uh, he meets this woman, Rose, and and they kind of fall in love even though it was a marriage of convenience is how it was described by some of the people that were contemporary um and yeah they left a honeymoon in sri lanka which was then called ceylon uh to paris and they also went to cairo where they got into an apartment set up a temple room and began invoking ancient Egyptian deities while studying Islamic mysticism and Arabic. Uh, Rose, think, go ahead.
1: Oh, do you think at all, could you put Alistair Crowley on a level of like a manly pee hall? No,
0: I, I, I think, you know, <laughs> I'm really a little bit stunned that you asked that. Cause I, I was thinking about manly pee hall just the other day. And, uh, you know, Manly P. Hall was a Freemason, but he was a honored Freemason, which Mm -hmm. means that he was given the title of Freemason after uh, he, I think they realized, oh, this guy knows a great deal about us. So he's kind of a mysterious character. I don't know if I trust Manly P. Hall as, as a accurate historian mm-hmm. although he does write a lot about history and it is fascinating to like get that take i just have to question like whether or not the things he was writing about were given to him as truth by freemasons for a certain purpose is a sort of unwitting agenda right so and no i you know manly p hall i don't know enough about him i have not i don't you know have a biography of his i have several of his books but I have Crowley's biography, so I feel like I have a better grasp on Crowley than I do on Manly. Uh, I like Manly P. Hall. I don't mm-hmm. think Manly P. Hall was someone who um, meant evil or harm or did evil or harm. I think the, the public uh, or the Philosophical Research Society is kind of proof of this. Like they have like a very public, uh, outwardly facing institution – in his name. So yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, there's no, there's no writing from Manly saying like, oh, I did this blood ritual or had like, you know, butt sex with this man. <laughs> like, you know, I like, they're totally different people really. <laughs> um,
1: yeah. I don't I, know enough about Manly. I just have distrustful,
0: equally distrustful to a certain extent, as far as like intrigue goes. Cause like Crowley, like The same can be said about him. He was taking this occult information, a lot of it that was not written in English at the time, and he was translating it and... You know, if he's the only authority on something that's never been translated in English, you have to ask yourself, like, did his espionage career influence that? Was Were there things that he was reporting back to his overseers that maybe didn't make its way into his writings, things that then the CIA and whatnot uh, used to their advantage when creating programs like MKUltra, right? Because those, mm-hmm. as you said, are very much a cult. So... But it's interesting because Rose seems like someone who could qualify as like one of these MK Ultra candidates in a way. Um, she is told, we're told she's, she was becoming delirious and she informed Crowley or Crowley that uh, they are waiting for you sort of ominously. And he had brought her to this museum and had her like, you know, kind of shown at all the exhibits like which god talked to you which god talked to you you know like and she pointed out one um one piece only one piece that she recognized and it was the stell of unc FN Konsu. I I said that like a Chinese word, but it's Egyptian. Uh I was it, impressed. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and Crowley, Crowley thought it was important that the exhibit's number was 666 which of course connects to his moniker the Beast um, and that is the Stella of Revealing so uh, yeah it all kind of synced up for him and as somebody who's experienced synchronicities myself I've questioned like you know at times do I have a guardian angel do I have a higher spirit and you know, it's important historically to think like, okay, maybe Crowley implanted that idea to some extent in the new age community, this idea of like your guardian angel, because he was very much a believer in that after this Egypt experience. And, uh, you know, personally not knowing any of that up until very recently and only knowing that, oh, I have a guardian angel, which came through pop culture. I mean, movies suggested that to me. It's not something I learned when I was raised like Catholic, or maybe it was introduced when I started reading this New Age stuff. But throughout my own life, with my own personal experience, I can comment and say that the idea of having a guardian angel is not an evil idea. I think it's a very human idea. I think it's something that Crowley probably lifted from-
1: Or a spirit guide-
0: yeah, I think it's something Crowley definitely like experienced to a certain extent and definitely wrote about. But I think he wrote about it in a way that was filtered through his ego because he wanted to be important. So his guardian angel was the most important guardian angel, you know? So I don't think like Crowley's experience with guardian angels is necessarily something that we should use as a commentary for our own relationship with our own higher self. I like to use that term it, it, it's kind of I don't know it does feel like a little clinical to like be like your higher self you know but I do I do feel like we have this like part of us whether it's your dream self or whatever it is that is outside of your ordinary consciousness and I think it if you have the right discipline that guardian can guide you and and maybe even be ben, uh beneficial source of of contact and you know i think someone who's maybe more swayed by a different religion would say like well that's god that's that is god that's just god talking to you but to a certain extent you know uh we are a piece of god we're a part of god so maybe that's the in between so i don't know there's a there's a variety of ways to think about that and i'm not giving my sort of uh, opine on which one's the best. I just think like when we look at Crowley, we have to like look at him not as somebody who was summoning a demon at this point in life, because for him at that point in life, it was still very much a benevolent thing that he was doing. He was bringing this book of the law into the world. It was dictated to him by this great, Holy Spirit that he met in the temple right in the in the great pyramid temple and it's funny uh, I can't take credit for this joke but I think you know Gordo from the those conspiracy guys
1: yes i love they, him it,
0: they did a fantastic six-hour episode on Aleister Crowley, and they made the joke during the episode that like he calls this being Iwas, right? And it's spelled like A-A-A-I-I-A-A-W-W-A-A-S-S-S. So it's spelled like the way you're supposed to pronounce it. And, you know, they have Irish accents, so I'm not gonna <laughs> impersonate them, but the the joke was like. That Crowley was saying, I was, I was. Like he was referring to himself and not even knowing that he was referring to himself because his ego was so inflated that he heard the word I was and spelled it out as A I I W, you know, instead of I W A S, referring to the I that is yourself. Right. So. That. I
1: think this sometimes for a lot of words, even, and this is just a philosophy, everyone out there, but even like, he's us, Jesus, like, it's like these kind of simple ideas that um, even the everybody Balenciaga and, you know, ball is king, but when you you look up ball, it usually means king or lord, so it's king is king or into the Alistair Crowley, do as thy wilt, which that is just saying kind of like you're the most amount of sovereign. You Mm -hmm. don't abide by any other law except unto yourself.
0: That's the thing that, you know, when you read Crowley and you read the people who have studied Crowley, yes, there are the occult apologists who want to just say, oh, Crowley's the best and you, you can't interpret this as bad. I don't agree with them. And I'm not taking that this point. That I'm about to make from them, uh, but Crowley, when he said "Do as thou will," he didn't mean the will that is my own personal will that compels me to get up out of my chair and have a drink. Or he was talking about the divine will that is like this overarching thing that people can connect to. It's not so much something that originates in any one individual, it's it's the collective will, it's what God, you can even say what God wants for humanity, right? That's kind of divine will in this term. So that phrase has been taken, it's been used by like creeps <laughs> who call themselves Satanists to justify like doing whatever they want. And I think that's stupid. It's so do you like, think
1: the connection of Alistair Crowley, Anton LeBay, Alistair Crowley is un, like, because people usually connect them both together so quick. Do you yeah. think it's kind of unfounded altogether and they use oh. that quote to kind of
0: I think Anton Anton LaVey was certainly inspired by Alistair Crowley, but Aleister Crowley was long dead before Anton was inspired by him. So, you know, it's like it's like the inventor of the gun, like you can't blame that man for every death (laughs) that's since the gun, you know. So, you know, I hate to make that kind of like really obtuse uh, comparison, but it is it does stand to logic that like you you have to look at Crowley as a person who maybe got into something in a way that he wasn't prepared to deal with the consequences of. So yeah, I think definitely people like LeVay took that and perverted it to a certain extent. I mean, there's a lot of hoopla about LeVay. I think he was certain like, rebel in the sense that he wanted people to think he was like chopping the heads off of babies and goats. And like, because it fulfilled this like sick fantasy that he had of how he wanted to be perceived. I think there's a certain like reality to that. Um, but there are real crimes and there are real victims. Uh, and when we talk about real criminals and real victims, if those criminals are inspired by occult things, well yeah we can look at Crowley and say he is a source of that inspiration but we also you know have to look at you know
1: <laughs> video games <laughs> and Metallica <laughs> well
0: and and the bible too cuz a lot yeah. of people have been killed in the name of the bible a lot of people have been killed in the name of the quran and even i'm sure the the uh you know the what's the you know, Hebrew book, the Torah, right, or whatever their original book is, the Old Testament, right? Uh, Jesus was killed in the name of the Old Testament, right? Yeah. So, or, or in the name of money, right? So, so yeah, I think we have to like again, like discard a little bit of that dualistic thinking when we look at any one individual, but then also like if we look at the body of intelligent material that Crowley put out, I mean. <laughs> to call it intelligent is a sort of like a grand compliment. If anything, like Crowley's like writing, it's very smart, but it's also coming from a certain madman, right? So like other madmen are going to take that madman's thoughts and be like, oh, okay, my madman is justified a little bit now, right? So I-, I don't think Crowley was like totally the type to, to – uh... well, actually, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, he was he was definitely mad to a certain extent and I don't know how much he actually acted on that, but he definitely was abusive to, to like the people that chose to be around him, which is interesting cuz he had that hypnotism to keep them around and I think that's something that a lot of cult leaders have. So, he is he does play into those archetypes, but he's also not, you know, He's not like this infallible God that people want to make him out to be when they say like, oh, he's the root of all Satanism. Right. Because then yeah. you're saying then you're giving him way more credit than he deserves, because to a certain extent, he, he didn't really understand a lot of what he was writing. And I think that that was a part of it for him because he wanted to give off this persona of like, oh, yes, I am the wickedest man in the world, because that was a part of the mesmerism. That was a part of the hypnotism that compelled people like Victor Neuberg to be his unwitting, you know, uh pet basically who would just go along with any ritual that Crowley needed to do even if that meant, you know, sadistically abusing the poor guy. Uh you know, he he was paying Crowley to be there, which is, you know, kind of sickening to think about that, you know, he was paying for this abuse, but in his mind it wasn't abuse because he was a part of this magical working right and and again like the same w- argument is made when people in like the kink community like they do things in private that they wouldn't want people seeing because people would say oh you're hurting that person you're abusing that person uh, but then they say no I, I i volunteered to be tied up i volunteered to be whipped.
1: I wanted a horsetail butt plug <laughs>
0: right so you have to like you have to like you can't put that assignment of you know like uh intention totally there but then again when we look at things from the cultural perspective you and i would both agree that bdsm is not a healthy expression of sexuality although maybe there's consensual participants who get something out of it I think that's a byproduct of our sickened society, and I think Crowley is somebody that very traditional religious people equate with the collapse of traditional values in the direction of a moral compromise and maybe even an embracement of certain depravities, right? But then again, as a lesbian yourself, like you wouldn't agree that homosexuality is depraved, right? So I think we have to be and I wouldn't either, right? So but I, I that's
1: kind of that. one of the schlick things that I think that the rulers of society do is they take a couple normal things right. and they mix it in with perversity right. so that way they can control. Right. And so then once we have control of our politicians or our bankers or our media people, it's all that same blackmail, honey. It's like, I, if once I can find out your kink, then I can control you with it, especially if I already took a picture of you once.
0: Right. Well, and, and also like... You know, not to equate your personal life to what we're talking about, uh, I'm, I want to separate what I'm about to say from what I just said, because I think the BDSM stuff, you know, to a certain extent is unhealthy and an unhealthy expression of sexuality, whether straight or gay. Uh, and I think that, you know, what we see with the SRA stuff, I mean, you can call BDSM SRA light to a certain extent, right? I mean, it's SRA up into the point of actually...
1: With BDSM and SRA, um, what do those mean?
0: uh, Bondage, sadomasochism, I think is BDSM. I I don't know what the D in BDSM stands for. Uh, And then uh, SRA is satanic ritual abuse. So, I mean, again, I'm probably making... Some people in the audience very uncomfortable if they're you know interested in that particular kink, and I apologize again, I'm not trying to say that consenting adults you know shouldn't be able to do what they want with each other, but I think that like some of those you know torture like methodologies,
1: even uh, things that aren't torturous I mean I talk to my audience all the time, I think a lot of the things that people it's perfectly. Um, You're allowed to do whatever you want if you're turned on by feet, but you're turned on by feet because probably you were in a bathroom stall at too old of an age or in a lady's changing room. Or if you're a cuck, if you're turned on by that idea of cucking, it's probably because you've watched so much porn that you've watched the money shot of another man's penis so many times. That's the only way you can get turned on by a vagina now. So it's like every level of kink. Every, it's like, it isn't healthy and it doesn't matter if we're allowed to do it or not. We should also, as adults, be able to look at each other and say, this thing I do is weird and it's probably from some kind of trauma or even if we don't consider it traumatic that your mom took you in a bathroom too old Why you – and we say starting puberty and people are like, I wasn't starting puberty until blank. And I'm like, well, puberty is a cycle that's very long. And so when you start getting boners and feeling different ways about yourself as a kid and you're sitting in a ladies' changing room – it's just doing weird thoughts. It's just, it's weird wiring. So I think it might not be a traumatic moment, but now you're, you have all these questions and stuff running through your brain and maybe shame for the first time. And maybe all these, it's like, and you're not allowed to say anything about it. So it becomes a kink as it grows and grows and grows in your, so I don't, what's healthy and unhealthy. I don't really know, but there are so many things in our society right now um, Because we've been slowly abused, our parents were abused, and we've all been kind of brainwashed in this way to all work through our root chakra. So everything is kind of this kink, like it's leaning toward this way. Like I do talk to my audience about this stuff all the time. So yeah, um, well, yeah the- I, I think yeah. that I can see what you're saying too. The same way everyone can say all porn is gay porn and all porn is eventually, even if it's consensual adult, Porn sites will eventually harm children. Like even if the porn site doesn't practice in that, the whole system that works, you're 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 contributing to something that also does this thing. Right. So it's like, do, does all uh, sexual depravity? You you're not practicing um, Satanism, but you might be leaning into a ritual that you don't know anything about you might be separating yourself like this from yourself in a way that you're who's get who's there when you walk away the same way as being like blackout drunk like you're inviting entities and energies that you aren't necessarily aware of even if you just think you're getting turned on through your root chakra Mm. but that's just my personal opinion on it i won't put it all on you but no
0: yeah and then i you know i don't have any you know qualms with what people do again with consenting adults but uh but there is that traditional religious perspective that equates that shift in culture to people like crowley and the movement that he was for lack of a better word either a part of the founding or just swept up into through maybe the intelligent agencies i mean i think that is one theory that you know it's not substantiated by. The authors I mentioned before but it's something that I kind of am suspicious of is like these culture creators and how they use people like him to get people thinking from their root chakra rather than their crown chakra you know and, mm-hmm. and again you know I'm not some you know perfect person who wants to tell everyone oh you got to be perfect just like me but I do think that like you know what you, you said there, which was very helpful to kind of clearing the air on, on some of the more, you know, touchy subjects here. Um, I think it's, it's important to, to mention that there are real victims of things like SRA and there are real victims of, of crimes and, and the fact that there's kind of an overlap with occult, practices and then there's another overlap with like kink community things i I don't think that means there's a direct like linear correlation but it's evident that something's changing right and maybe it's the
1: same way as like me getting married has nothing to do with a drag queen reading to kids in a library but somewhere it's all a thing now but that's kind of what they wanted it to be it's like all packaged together as and then like me and my wife making cookies on a sunday has nothing to do with some guy in a G-string walking down the street leading a parade in front of your kids right. but somehow it's all the same thing now well, like that's this, they, this is like that was the goal wanna,
0: that's what they want to do and and in the same way crowley kind of became that for all occultism where you know oh crowley did this therefore Everything's bad. You know, Lon Milo Duque, he's bad. You know, Damien Eccles, he's bad. Like, and you know, I personally think Damien Eccles is pretty bad, but that's Me a different too. conversation. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Crowley, you know, he he kind of again, we have to look at him for the person he was. And here's an incident where, you know, we see that he wasn't the best person. Uh and he like you asked before, did he climb up? The Himalayas uh well he climbed up Kachang- uh, in Nepal and at that time the British had an interest in Nepal you know they actually invaded Nepal uh around that time uh the Russians were in Nepal uh very very interesting time period a very interesting place and Crowley was there not just for mountaineering but possibly for spy reasons um And apparently he was such a kind of asshole on this, uh, expedition that the rest of the crew tried to mutiny against him and it ended up killing all of them. Uh, I think he was like one or two of the only people that survived that, uh, expedition and the people that did survive blamed him and he kind of had a really bad reputation as a Mountaineer ever since. That point. So, you know, I don't know what that says about Crowley kind of putting his own maybe objectives over the lives of other people, obviously wants to get to the top of this mountain to have some kind of spiritual experience. And, uh, and yeah, he did not, he was not successful. So
1: didn't some people say that he um, did a spell up there and or a ritual and caused an avalanche?
0: That's yeah. I mean, and that's the thing. It's, it's like, how would we prove that?
1: There's one side, let me, and I'll ask you the other side too, to bring it back to the spy thing of it Yeah. in a like way of that. We know spies work and we take certain few people on this mission and only me and one other dude come back from this mission that there happened to be an avalanche on. I'm going to go right up there and do a quick ritual, By a ritual, I mean I'm gonna stick a bomb in the side of this mountain and blow an avalanche on all these people and I'm gonna know where to stand to survive it. And you're like you listed people that died in it that were actually famous enough to have their name listed. So then it's like, did we kill these people on purpose? Or is was this like a Clinton suicide back when? Like, was he maybe a higher level spy doing where it's like, yeah, sure, go on the Titanic. I'll meet you there. And I'm J.P. Morgan. (laughs) And then I like a week before Uh, I go, I'm like, I'm not going to make the ship.
0: You're on to something there. We'll get to that later. But uh, yeah, don't let me forget about the Titanic. Yeah, I I, I don't, you know, again, I don't discount that. I don't leave that uh, as being impossible. No, I think that's very likely that he had some ulterior motive. Again, like they were in Nepal, not just to climb mountains, but because it was politically active at the time. It was a very important place to have control over, and especially considering what would happen in the next hundred years with Russia and China and England, right? So, yeah, definitely I'm not uh, versed enough in that what a
1: perfect cover story that crazy guy did a spell up there don't go on a mountain trek with and
0: that's but that's the trouble with crowley is like you have to you have to be careful because there are a lot of conspiracy authors who have written things about him that just aren't true unfortunately as interesting and as legendary as they might be and they do add to his sinister image i don't want to be the guy to pass on the wrong information Uh, i mean if we're talking about like I love this stance about you.
1: Anyone who's into anything, if you want, always this stance that is like you're just going to give the facts and it's not ever going to get off the what if this means this and what if this means this and what if this. It's not a ton of mental masturbation. <laughs> thank,
0: you. thank you, yeah, I mean, if we were writing like the best Crowley movie, you know, yes, we would include that, and that would be a probably a cool plot point, but no i I don't know enough about him to be able to say, like for sure he did that, um, and you know he went on in this trip to do some things that definitely affected the rest of his life, uh obviously kind of keeping his relationship with his holy guardian angel. Uh, but he he traveled through with his wife and newly born child which I think says a lot about him as an individual and as a father that he would bring his kid along with him but I, I mean it was a different time um, and yeah so they they traveled through China and he was smoking all this opium and this was right around like The opium war time so britain definitely had an interest in china's opium and uh he traveled through a lot of what would later be known as vietnam then it was called uh you know french something or other but uh yeah he he was traveling on horseback through china he actually shot some people in india prior to his trip in china uh non-lethally shot them but yeah um
1: isn't the Opium Wars like one of the big, huge guys that created the Opium Wars? His cousin was like the creator of the Skull and Bones.
0: Well, yeah, a lot of the, so the Russell Trust Association, which incorporated the Skull and Bones into becoming like what it is, that name Russell, uh, that's named after William Huntington Russell, whose cousin was Samuel Russell, who is a, uh, you know, mercantile, sort of very fa- uh, very wealthy kind of shipping guy and all of those guys in the New England Coast were selling opium because they had recently lost their money in slavery. They lo- you know they couldn't do the slave trade as much anymore. They were still doing the slave trade. they just couldn't do it publicly uh, so now they had to find something else. So yeah, they they were into opium. For sure, yeah. And they and, got
1: all of China kind of addicted to it to control them. They always said that would be the way to control a whole country.
0: Well, and and that was, yeah, that was after somewhat. Um, yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. This w- Crowley being in there was after that period, okay. Skull okay, and Bones, Skull and Bones is, you know, was around before Crowley was born. Um, but yeah, definitely definitely uh something that the british were nonetheless invested in thinking cra-
1: about him as a spy is blowing my mind like <laughs> thinking about it with that whole new goggles on is like oh my gosh and what was happening at this part of the world now and what's happening here and now you can just move this guy anywhere and,
0: well, I think that's part of why he has the reputation as this big, bad black magician, because the British government doesn't want the attention focused on this stuff. They don't want him seeming like a competent agent. They want him seeming like a bumbling black magician who's just wicked and evil and not to be looked at, right? The and Monica
1: that, Lewinsky, where <laughs> don't look at Epstein Island, we'll put a scandal out of our own. Right. So it's kind of like the, that's what they do to him. Don't look any deeper here. We'll put all this stuff, all this smokescreen that's so creepy and weird to look at. You'll never get to back here that he's just a spy for British intelligence.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and he he ended up, you know, spending some time in Yunnan, China, and then headed to Shanghai to meet a woman who he had an affair with after he shipped his wife and newly born kid uh, off to... um Back to England, I think, or maybe like Calcutta, India. Uh, So he sends his wife and kid off, has this affair in China, goes off to Japan, then Canada, then New York City, and then finds out that his daughter had uh, died. Oh no, my Crowley the father image is not here. You can't see him. There's a delightful picture of him and his daughter and and Rose. And I don't know, I mean, maybe you can see it. I can't see it. I so. can't see it either. Oh, shoot. Okay. Maybe
1: I'll lay it on there and edit.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'll send it to you. But anyway, so yeah, Rose was born. And shortly after that trip to uh, China, she died. I think the slides might be out of order. But uh, but yeah, around the same time, Crowley was writing another pornographic poetry book called Snowdrop. So it initially had white stains And he had Snowdrops, and Snowdrops also has some uh, pedophilic, pornographic poetry in it, which is odd. But also, I mean, again, maybe a byproduct of the time, maybe something that was a little more accepted within British culture and, you know, not something that he completely invented or was particular to him, right? Uh, But it's still, uh, nonetheless— Shocking. And it's not
1: like a rabbit hole you really want to go down of pedophilia, <laughs> pornography well, around famous even, people in Britain at the time.
0: <laughs> but it's not even that. I mean, it's not like, I don't think other people have gone down it. So I couldn't, like, I mean, I don't have the skills to like do the research that's required to look into that enough. Like I'm kind of resting on the shoulders of people who, who have, you know, that capacity to look through Crowley's life, but maybe didn't decide to go down that avenue themselves and again like those guys I mentioned earlier uh, Philip Fairbanks or John Cerucci they have written about that subject and I'd have to go and look at their work to to see if there's any crossover but as far as right now no I I think it was just more of a cultural thing that he picked up on maybe something that was more uh, a part of the underbelly of London for longer than just Jimmy Savile right so Yeah, yeah Anyways, Crowley arrives in Britain, finds out his daughter had died uh, while, you know, he was off, and he sent his wife t- to just kind of fend for herself and and uh, take care of the daughter, and that led to Rose becoming an alcoholic, which Crowley was not really sympathetic towards her for that Um and he kind of just like shooed her off. They did have a second child who uh I don't think passed away. I think she actually lived uh and outlived both her father and her mother. So um there is a Crowley child out there. Uh you know a lot of people try to say that like Barbara Brush might be, you know, a relative of Crowley and considering that, you know, um this daughter i don't know if he had any other children it's totally possible that he did but uh you know if his daughter was around she definitely wouldn't have had the last name crowley after she had a child so you know i don't know maybe there's a different name that that person went by and we can find a connection there but uh yeah crowley had oh no it looks like all my pictures are broken now what's going on maybe i need to reload my Slides.
1: Take your time. Oh. well, why? If you're doing that, if I, I don't know how much of your brain power, um, I'll ask you about Scotland. Yeah, uh, with Aleister Crowley, because that was before all this stuff, right?
0: So, c- sort of within the same time, because he's traveling a lot and he goes back to Scotland a couple times, and yeah, he had this house called the Baleskin house in scotland on loch ness and he was doing some uh ritual workings there the abramelin ritual that was sort of lengthy and exhaustive he did some of it there and and did not continue with his work and some people think that the fact that he kind of like stopped the ritual midway and gave up on it like left a magical energy in that house to this day And the third episode of my podcast, I talked to a guy from Ireland who, um, I guess, has been to Scotland a couple times. Maybe he's from Scotland. I mean, shoot, I really hope I I don't know the difference between an Irish person and a Scottish person, but uh, I do. Uh, Maybe I'm just forgetting. But either way, he had some kind of like connection to the Boleskine house, and he told me uh, about how... It was burned down twice, one the first time mysteriously, the second time I think they chalked it up to like vandals, and he also told me about this box that he found, this is a guy who's alive now, Um, he found a box in the Beleskin house, or he bought a box that was found in the Beleskin house, and it had not been opened, and he opened it after we had planned on doing our podcast and he told me about what was in the box uh during the podcast and it was like a creepy voodoo doll and and something that was allegedly written by Crowley himself Uh, a lot of people like to point at his most famous uh entity that he encountered which is lamb and lamb kind of looks like a gray alien it's got like this big inflated forehead it doesn't have the eyes that we have, you know, with grays, you know, people typically see like more insectoid style eyes on on a gray, or maybe even like big black eyes. This drawing had just sort of normal looking, you know, European style eyes. So yeah, there's some strange things with Crowley that have like left a residue there in that Boleskine house to this day and obviously Loch Ness has the Loch Ness monster so uh and it's a very deep lake which magically that's important you know if you're doing ritual working you want to have you know sort of uh you want to have a body of water nearby and that helps you're muted
1: There are people um, that theorize that he left some magical portal open and that maybe it was what the Loch Ness energy was or is. Like some other entity from a different – I always go back to uh, Alex Jones on Joe Rogan being like the interdimensional space demons and somewhere in like an easy way – they opened up an interdimensional portal of some sort with their magic. And in the same way, if we were just to talk about the uh, avalanche in a magical way, um, could you theorize that maybe the Loch Ness Monster isn't a dinosaur of thinking, but maybe just an energy that came out of the water from Mm. magic, like an Aggregor or a Servitor? Yeah.
0: I mean, (laughs) I wouldn't discount that. And, you know, Crowley traveled a lot, in america so who knows maybe he had some uh encounters here too like with bigfoot or one of the other strange creatures that we have uh, all around the united states all
1: right
0: all right so you should be able to see the screen so uh, you know as we were saying before there's uh you know some sort of there's a bunch of theories about people who may or may not be related to Crowley, but uh, as far as I know, he only had daughters, and his daughters, uh, a few of them passed away, uh, so I don't know. I mean, he wa- he did get around a lot, so he could have you know some illegitimate children that we don't know about, but I think you know, a lot of those claims of lineage uh, to Crowley are either by people who wish they had something to connect them to Crowley, or maybe by researchers who want someone to be associated with his sinister, you know, persona, which may or may not be built on truth you know i mean he was a mystic which to anyone who's of a sort of traditional bent mysticism could seem like satanism or worse you know so i don't know i think that uh crowley definitely had some things in common with me i love smoking weed and he wrote a whole book about uh The psychology of hashish, where he made heavy use of his uh, pipe and hash. And, you know, he was traveling all over the place. So I'm sure he got a variety of different hashes from different places. And he said that it aided in his mysticism. And I would concur that that is what happened to me. Uh, I was
1: just about to ask you if it aided in your mysticism.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, it's also why I became interested in Crowley in the first place was because when I started smoking weed, I felt like there was a truth out there that I had yet to hear of in my normal life that maybe can't. Get. And I started to notice my intuition guide me towards certain uh books. And I remember getting Crowley's Book of the Law, which was the, basically the book that he recited in the Egyptian Pyramid, and I was really disappointed. I mean, it was it read more like, you know, scripture than anything else I'd ever, you know, it's just like a guy that was like saying, oh, the world's going to change, and here's why. So, uh, but, you know, some of his books are, are worth reading. This one in, I have in my hand, uh... The Book of Lies actually has more truth in it than most of his books, in my opinion. Um, And I've learned a couple really interesting things about him, and it's actually this book that got him involved with the OTO, because the OTO was not founded by Crowley, contrary to what people want to say about Crowley. Uh, Crowley founded something different called the AA, and uh, he was writing all these holy books. Uh, things like t- with titles like Liber Arcanorum or Liber Portalusis Subfigura. I mean, he was writing a bunch of uh, what we could call ceremonial magic. And this kind of laid the groundwork for what would later become his Dilema religion, which is uh, definitely, you know, it, it makes sense that he would become this kind of prophet. He came from a, a family of people who believed, you know, the Plymouth brethren who believed in this sort of like going from town to town and preaching the good word. So, you know, the the uh, archetype of the prophet was always kind of in the background of his mind throughout his life. And he kind of had the wealth and the finances to support this interest in spirituality, so he, you know, he's called kind of a hack in a certain way because a lot of what he wrote isn't his own. He's translating a lot of stuff. But to a certain extent, that is like a very valuable thing to do at that time because a lot of that stuff hadn't been written in English, especially written in like plain English. So, uh, yeah, I think there's again another kind of aspect to Crowley where he's not all bad he's more of a kind of like a trickster figure in a way revealing things while also having a harmful edge um but i think that harmful edge was really a byproduct of uh his trauma and his his weird associations um but anyways his inheritance was running out by 1909 and uh he he was hired by a guy to help protect him from witchcraft. This guy thought that he was being assailed by witches. So he hired Crowley and uh, Crowley became friends with him and sort of brought him along with him to Morocco uh, to get over his fears of witchcraft. And then sometime after that, he meets this guy Jones. uh, I don't know. I think I have his full name here. Yeah. Jones Fuller. Um, and they start the AA, which was like uh pretty much, you know, the same thing as the golden Dawn, but with all of Crowley's new Thelema type, you know, writings infused into it. So, he wanted to make it like a successor to the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn.
1: And the AA is so similar to the Hermetic Triangles of as above, so below, that you see just those very air-water symbols, depending on what uh, part of the earth you're looking at. Uh, it's clever to me, just staring at it right now. Um, and uh, the Hermetic symbol of even how it looks almost Star of david but it's still the uh, a a thelema symbol. It's almost Star of Davidy, but it's the as above, so below as well. And so he was, he did think with his sigil magic. Like he was putting so much thought into everything that he did. It nothing was flippant for him.
0: Yeah, it definitely you know as a ceremonial magician, you could say that. I mean, there's definitely things that he wrote that make no sense. So I mean, you can't say that. Oh before. my gosh. About
1: 777 around, uh, it's like my brain has such a hard time of getting into a place of being I don't know anywhere to even it's just such, such a hard book to read to me
0: <laughs> well on the point of his writing he actually wrote a few articles for Vanity Fair um I don't know if this I think I just picked a random cover of Vanity Fair I don't think this is the exact issue that uh contained his article, but I thought it was cool that they had the Masonic checkerboard on their Vanity Fair cover. Who knows what that has to do with?
1: The roses, Um, the Joker, tons of great symbology.
0: (laughs) Right. So like I said, Crowley, you know, he's smoking hash, he's going to Morocco he meets this guy, Victor Neuberg, who becomes like a student protege, but also sort of like an assistant in these magical rituals and also a sex partner in these ra- magical rituals. So he takes Victor down to Algeria uh, again, you know, another place that's like a political front at the time where maybe he's doing some side spy work uh he goes and does this very now it's sort of one of the more famous things that he's done uh which is the evocation of a demon named Choronzon Choronzon and this involves some sort of uh blood shed uh where i'm not sure i'm it might be written out there somewhere um exactly whose blood was shed whether that was an animal or their own blood or whatever i mean neither of them died uh who knows what came along with that type of ritual but this uh this was a part of you know this like turn like you know this ritual he begins to do more public ritual work after this after this mountaintop sex magic ritual uh invoking a a demon right so i don't know enough about like the inner workings of like the occult stuff to give you like the two like sides of this ritual like some people are gonna hear this and be like oh that's all bad of course he was evoking a demon with blood sacrifice like that's terrible you know But then there's other people who are going to make the argument that, oh, well, this is ceremonial. You know, they use some sort of stand in for a sacrifice. Uh, A lot of people have pointed out a passage in Crowley's very big book, which I own, called uh,
1: Lieberman. It could be um, menstrual blood. There's blood magic and all sorts of things that has nothing to do with killing. Just, uh, you know add to that well, point and, that it's it, like sometimes it's not nefarious.
0: Exactly. And you know, that's again, I don't know enough about the inner workings of these ceremonies to say what exactly goes down physically. Um, you know, there's all obviously there's a discrepancy between like what they're doing in the <clears throat> physical world and what they're doing maybe in the imaginal world, in the realm of their mind, in a dream state. I mean, you have to imagine that during a ceremony, ceremonial magic, they're going into some sort of trance. So, to to read the contents of, like, let's say, uh, a ceremonial magic session, and and take it verbatim as like physical fact, I think is is not really appropriate for the subject matter. I think it's it's something that takes part halfway in the mind and halfway in the real world. So, but anyways, everybody who wants to point the finger at Crowley and call him a villain points out the part of his book that I have here, uh, where he suggests that the most suitable sacrifice victim is a young man uh, of sufficient, like naivete and innocence. Right. So, you know, this implies like, that there's some sort of really really evil thing going on here where maybe he actually has killed a child in the name of ritual sacrifice i mean it's certainly not elaborated on much in this book it just he they mentioned it's not
1: unheard of in the and world it's not room. unheard of
0: it's not unheard of and also there are the crowley apologists who would tell you that no that's just a metaphor for masturbation right because uh you know semen is is considered like children right but you know I don't know I don't know how much they knew about <laughs> you know in
1: a real simple way like a uh, paranoid american and I were talking about it and I just like this way of thinking about everything too of being like this grunting naked ape so like a human sacrifice we would be like crying like rain We need to make human cry to make God happy to make rain. And so like they would have this very grunting way that maybe as we got more philosophical and more enlightened and all these things, we would have thought these really barbaric rituals were for some higher thing, but really it was just how they thought it was to make it rain back when. And so in a way of blood, it's like, if you put blood on any soil... Um, what happens to it? I don't know. Does it add minerals for growth for crops later on that you wouldn't necessarily understand in a grunting ape kind of way that a crop might have found value? Uh, or a tribe might have found value with it, so they did it again the next year. They were like, "Whoa, we cut our goat's neck here last year, and this corn was so much bigger than our last corn. Maybe we should cut a goat's neck here every year." Like sometimes things that we think of in such a gross, nefarious way because of where we're at now, we didn't come from those places intellectually to understand the like same way that a fair chicken. They just rinse repeat. They don't know. They're like, oh, if I touch this center point, I get fed. So they're like, look at this chicken knows what purple is. But no, it just knows how it's going to get fed, (laughs) you know, kind of idea that sometimes it's like we think everything's sometimes so dark ritual, but maybe it's just a smarter person looking at a dumb person, repeat something and think something comes out of it different. Mm yeah,
0: no, there's certainly nuance to a lot of this stuff. I think that's kind of that's the trouble with some of the you know, less academic takes on this stuff. and and then that's the trouble with conspiracy is that you know, you can't really trust the establishment to be honest. So, you know, who do we trust with things like this and and how do we assess history uh, in this way? but you know when it comes to blood sacrifice yeah there's there's a lot of interpretations i just want to read verbatim instead of paraphrasing exactly what he says because it's a specific chapter of uh of this book it's chapter 7 um page 204 titled of the bloody sacrifice and he says <clears throat> It is necessary for us to consider carefully the problems connected with the bloody sacrifice, for this question is indeed traditionally important in magic. Nigh all ancient magic revolves around this matter. In particular, all the Assyrian religions, the rites of the dying god, refer to this the slaying of Osiris and Adonis, the mutilation of Addis. The cults of Mexico and Peru, the story of Hercules or Melkarth, the legends of Dionysus or Mithra are all connected with this one idea. In the Hebrew religion, we find the same thing inculcated. The first ethical lesson in the Bible is that only... The sacrifice pleasing to the Lord is the sacrifice of blood. Abel, who made this finding favor with the Lord, while Cain, who offered cabbages, was rather naturally considered a cheap sport. The idea recurs again and again. We have the sacrifice of the Passovers, following on the story of Abraham's being commanded to sacrifice his firstborn son, with the idea Of the substitution of animal for human life the annual ceremony of the two goats carries out this in perpetuity and we see again the domination of this idea in the romance of esther where haman and mordecai are the two goats or gods and ultimately in the presentation of the rite of purim in palestine where jesus and barbas happened to be the goats in that particular year of which we hear so much without agreement on the date. Um, enough has now been said to show that the bloody sacrifice has from time immemorial been the most considered part of magic. The ethics of the thing appeared to have concerned no one nor to tell the truth need they do so. As St. Paul says, without shedding of blood there is no remission. And who are we to argue with St. Paul? But after all, that is open to anyone to have any opinion that he likes upon the subject or any other subject, thank God. At the same time, it is most necessary to study the business, whatever we may be going to do about it, for our ethics themselves will naturally depend upon our theory of the universe. So, I mean, here you see... Crowley has a sense of humor about this. He's t- telling you, you know, this is not something that I'm inventing. It's clearly a part of every culture's, you know, high society religion to sacrifice with blood. I mean, he even points at Jesus Christ himself being a blood sacrifice. So and he takes it very seriously um, and he has some ethics about it too. I mean, he's suggesting that people's ethics depend on their theory of the universe, which at the time I'm sure may be referring to like Darwinism and this idea that, oh, we're just uh, accidents of (laughs) evolutionary coincidences, uh, you know, apes in a faraway material ball, you know, This is that atheistic thing that's coming around at the time, and Crowley clearly was not an atheist at all, so he would have had some uh, probably poor things to say about atheists, but if we were quite certain, for example, that everybody went to heaven when he died, there could be no serious objection to murder or suicide, as it is generally conceded by those who know neither that earth is not such a pleasant place as heaven. However, this is a mystery concealed in this theory of the bloody sacrifice, which is of great importance to the student, and we therefore make no further apology. We should not have to make even this apology, for an apology had it not been for the solicitude of a pious young friend of great austerity of character who insisted that the part of this chapter which now follows, the part which was originally written, might be cause of might cause us to be misunderstood this must not be so i mean this is kind of hard to decipher i don't know what your thoughts are on it i can tell you how i interpret it he's basically saying hey we're going to talk about bloody sacrifice and i didn't invent it so don't blame me i'm not the source about of it right which is interesting because the the crowley apologists want to tell you that it's just an allegory it's just a metaphor but if it's just an allegory and it's just a metaphor well was jesus's you know hanging on the cruise you know his crucifixion was that was that just a uh, allegory was that just a metaphor i mean to some people's universe worldview yeah sure i mean there's plenty of people you go around and pull people on the street and ask them if they thought Jesus was actually a living person. I'm sure now in the modern day people will probably say no. They'll say, Oh no, he's just a myth, he's just an invention of Christian religion, which I don't personally subscribe to that. I tend to think that he was a physical living person, but uh but either way, it's definitely you know interesting to have that have this like qualification to the beginning of the sacrifice chapter. And Crowley even kind of being a little bit like frustrated about having to give an apology, almost like insulted that he need to explain himself to, you know, the, the unadept. So yeah, if you
1: were going to talk about magic in any way, um, if you were to give to any God and you were to even probably read about it in the Bible to sacrifice to a God would be one thing, even to give it, um, people that work in any, uh santeria they might leave a snickers bar for a certain deity so if you could give it if you were uh requested to give it blood or if you felt like we gave the sun god this and then like you're saying okay Well, we'll just give it all our old people. No, the gods know that's kind of cheating. So the younger we give it, it knows how valuable this baby is to us. So that would be one thing. And even back when, if we had a son, that would be way, way, way more valuable than a daughter. Look how helpful of a hand that's going to be for the farm and for taking care of things later on. It's not going to be two mouths to feed. It's not a womb to worry about. So to sacrifice that would be the most valuable thing back when to if we believed in a higher power so the blood of the thing um would be real and we can see this blood sacrifice um just in you know the the bull dance we were talking about uh the running of the bulls all the way down to like the matadors and uh how this is like a representation throughout um so much of history this isn't just uh he didn't create it not to stick up for Crowley um but I would imagine if you were practicing in such high levels of magic that you were uh doing sex rituals past a point of your own sexuality you might be doing blood rituals past a point of your own moral code as well Hmm. so it it might not be
0: well and and I didn't even get to the most salacious part he uh he says <clears throat> It would be unwise to condemn as irrational the practices of those savages who tear the heart and liver from an adversary and devour them while yet warm. In any case, it was the theory of the ancient magicians that any living being is a storehouse of energy varying in quantity according to the size and health of the animal and in quality according to its mental and moral character he then goes on to give an example of something and then says for the highest spiritual working, one must accordingly choose that victim, which contains the greatest and purest force. A male child of perfect innocence and high intelligence is the most satisfactory and suitable victim. And, uh, that, you know, it's shocking to hear that, but, uh, he kind of like Annotates those two sentences and says, um, "It appears from the magical records of—well, actually, these are the editors saying this. It appears from the magical records of Frater Perdurabo, which is Alistair Crowley's uh, sort of fraternity name—that he made this particular sacrifice on average about 150 times every year between 1912 and 1928." Consider or uh, contrast J.K. Huseman's Labas, where a perverted form of magic of an analogous order is described. And this is a quote from that J.K. Huseman's Labas that they're comparing to Aleister Crowley's statement for context. It says, it is the sacrifice of oneself spiritually spirituality oh, i'm sorry this is <laughs> let me let me try to rephrase this it is the sacrifice of oneself spiritually and the intelligence and innocence of that male child are the perfect understanding of the magician his one aim without lust of result and male he must be because what he sacrifices is not the material blood, but his creative power. This initiated interpretation of the text was sent spontaneously by somebody with an acronym for a name, IWE, for the sake of the Younger Brethren. Um, so, And then they say, although Crowley intersperses cautions against literal interpretations of his remarks throughout the chapter, his detractors frequently cite this statement out of context to assert that he advocated literal human sacrifice, a practice he repudiated. So what they're basically saying is that Crowley's not talking about killing a man, killing a male child he's talking about masturbation and that's why he was able to do that 150 times every year between uh the years 1912 and 1928 not because he had a serial killing spree but because he was a serial masturbator and uh i mean that's probably very common considering the you know, sexual atmosphere we're in today. You know, people are watching porn and masturbating daily. So uh, to say that he only did it every other day instead of every day uh, is kind of like, I don't know, makes him less of a a sexual person than some people, at least me, when I was at the height of my uh, single young male uh, life. So yeah, I mean, that being said, it's hard to separate Crowley from the vision we get of him in the conspiracy world you know like i said there are real criminals there are real victims so it we the human mind wants to put it in a story context we want to have a bad guy to point to and because the system more often than not is protecting these awful criminals it's hard to reconcile how that kind of thing would happen And I really, I don't know, I'm not an expert, but I don't think Crowley uh, intended on being an influence on that. Whether or not he was, I think is without debate. He certainly was. People of all types of depravity have taken his work and used it to inspire them going further with it. But that isn't necessarily his fault. Um, So I don't, I mean, again, you know, you write that kind of stuff. Yes, it's irresponsible to a certain extent because he knew maybe people would interpret it as a actual killing rather than just simply masturbating. Um so yeah, I I don't know. It's it's definitely like all of the stuff about Crowley being evil in my opinion as far as I've found it it kind of all goes back to that what I just read.
1: There is masturbation is a thing in uh sex magic semen is a whole separate thing in sex magic Mm. um blood is a whole separate thing in sex magic murder it would be a whole separate like i mean the idea of what it could be in between um it could be anything and then it could be all the things and then it also could be uh Kind of in a way of making the lore of him darker or the just in case later on, if there actually was bodies found that in the Jimmy Savile way that everything that we found out about him afterward or everything that unfolds about these people after their death, it's like, um, who kind of knows? It almost seems like they let him have too much of his lore. Uh, where you don't know if it's like part of it's a shaming ritual or part of it, like the, the amount we know about this guy still in our zeitgeist is pretty interesting that they've oh, yeah. allowed so much of it to stay.
0: I, well, I think Crowley, you know, he's definitely one of the more documented people of his time. You know, he wrote a lot about himself and other people wrote a lot about him. He had a lot of contemporaries that... Were writers so yeah there's a lot to to find about him but uh i don't think crowley had the same power sway and influence that a guy like savile had i mean savile you're talking about somebody who was literally like friends with the royal family right i mean he was he was britain's like number one pop star crowley was more of like a punk rocker before they had punk rock. I mean, he was kind of punk rocking against the Christian traditional stuff while still kind of being a conservative person himself. Like I said, he he wasn't like a liberal in the sense that we would have today or even in the 60s. I mean, he probably would have thought the hippies were uh, like kind of you know... Yeah, rugged and not really like worth his time. So... Yeah, I mean, although those folks got a lot of inspiration from him and and kind of like Jimmy Page, you know, like took a lot of musical inspiration from his occult stuff. Like, I think that would have happened uh, with or without him, but it wouldn't have happened as quickly. Like, he definitely, like, opened up a lot of those occult things to be more palatable for people who were uninitiated. pop
1: cultured it, the whole entire thing.
0: Yeah, cuz this was all stuff that was relegated to secret societies and for the most part, you know, they were pretty good at keeping their secrets and and people who talked about it, I mean, you had to be like a guy like Crowley who was also an intelligence agent. And I wonder if that was part of his mission as an intelligence agent to sort of bust up these other occult Uh, players so that the British intelligence could use their occult knowledge with impunity. And you see, you know, Hitler doing that with his, you know, uh, special service group, you know, whatever SS swaffed in those guys. I mean, those guys literally used the skull and bones death head as their symbol. And they were certainly the type to, uh, you know, they, they were the Gestapo. They went around and they made sure nobody else was practicing that stuff. They confined all of that so i mean that we're getting into a whole nother thing there but crowley <laughs> was was a part of uh the english empire and he was a spy and you know i think he definitely had his hands in world war one in a way uh we're gonna get there you mentioned the titanic before and crowley um crowley was definitely connected but like i said he wrote this book the book of lies this guy, Theodore Roos, who essentially claimed that the OTO was inspired by the Illuminati, the real historical Illuminati, and he he claimed that he was recreating the Illuminati. So that's what the Ordo Templi Orientis is. And, and Crowley, he has this book of lies that Roos thought, well, Crowley, you must be stealing our Stuff because you wrote about you know this in our book of lies and crowley's like, no, 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 I knew this from, from this, that, and this, and that made them friends, very similar into to the way that Crowley got into the order of the golden dawn. He kind of weasels his way into the Ordo Templi Orientis and in a very similar fashion, like nobody mentions the OTO without mentioning Crowley, just like nobody mentions the Order of the Golden Dawn without mentioning Crowley. And even people have a misunderstanding of the two and often conflate the two uh, for being the same group when they're not. And uh, yeah, so it's like, you know, you got to consider maybe Crowley was sort of uh, there the Brit- Britain's inside man who was kind of busting up these like German and Spanish and Mexican secret societies that were not uh aligned with the crown and the crown's interests and obviously this was the the way warfare was engaged that back then you know it was spy on spy <laughs> magician and wizard on wizard like that's kind of I think a part of history that we don't really look at. Um, and we don't really appreciate, but it very much inspired characters that we love, like Sherlock Holmes, and, uh, you know, all of the great sci-fi writers who incorporated things like this into their sci-fi work. So, you know, Crowley, he, uh, he goes into the OTO, and in similar fashion, he starts, like, publicizing stuff, and, like, he does all these, like, Uh, events where he's like on stage doing like ritual magic performances for crowds and people are like this guy's the the most disgusting shocking man i've ever seen and this only adds to his like reputation as this like wicked person which he kind of at this point in his life he really loved that reputation and uh this is 1914 we're talking about and obviously in Paris you know things are a little more libertine uh, he has his his partner Newberg with him and they're doing these uh, very intense uh, rituals called the Paris Working which involved a great deal of sex magic and they even recruited uh, a journalist named Walter Durante to help out in this sex magic and uh, they were trying to invoke the gods Mercury and Jupiter and um they really didn't uh victor and crowley they did not last after this uh newberg began to distance himself from crowley and crowley cursed him so uh after being pretty much an abusive person to him throughout their entire relationship he then ends their relationship by cursing him which is nice because you know victor newberg actually didn't like to similar end, like didn't live a very happy life for the rest of his life. Uh, he was kind of plagued with uh like mental uh, insecurity and like psychosis and Crowley, although not really insecure, kind of had a similar strain of psychosis in his later life. But uh yeah, we have Crowley in Paris. Then he set sail for New York City and uh this is right around the first world war breaking out and he set sail for the United States abo- aboard the Lusitania which eventually huh. sank and led the world uh you know the United States to help out with world war 1 so you have to wonder like maybe there was some sort of ploy there and Crowley had you know some kind of knowledge of why the Lusitania uh ended up doing what it did, right? I mean, he he clearly had some interest in helping out the English and the English wanted America's support. And America at that point in time was very sick of war after the Civil War and all these sort of banana republic conflicts around the the Pacific theater. They were like, no, we're not going to war. But then the Lusitania convinced them to help out with World War One. So
1: If you Um, were just being spy with him and just saying he's like NWO in the way that we know it now, like the CIA ops spreading stuff, he could have just planted a bomb in the Lusitania. He could have you know and then this whole screw
0: loose. I mean, you know, he could have something as mundane as like, yeah, pulled like a screw loose, like let alone not like a bomb. I, I don't know. Or Yeah,
1: something well,
0: but it could have been something as simple as like, yeah, sabotage that went unnoticed and led to the Lusitania sinking. And then they were able to place this cover story on it like, oh, it got sunk by Germans. We need to, you know, protect the United States from these awful Germans and, you know, the English, uh, you know, they Or
1: in a magical way. He could have done a spell on it. (laughs)
0: <laughs> right. Right. Well, and the ocean is is actually, yeah, I mean a magical, magical place. So there's a lot of Well, you're
1: like deep, um, the deep lake thing of Loch Ness, and then you're like, huh, where did the Lusitania? You look at these certain deep places in the ocean. What well, even just the magic
0: and... lore around like ship ships and captains and pirates and I mean there's a great deal of lore about that where you know There are certain things that are unlucky on a ship and maybe, who knows, maybe Crowley knew what was unlucky for a ship, you know, what, what uh, events were unlucky for a ship to have take place on it. So I don't know. Yeah. You're not
1: supposed to have bananas on a boat.
0: Bananas. Well, how do they ever make it? uh...
1: (laughs) I don't know. Apparently that's a thing in Jamaica. I think it's bananas in Jamaica. If you bring bananas on the boat, they'll be like, they'll throw them right in the water or tell you to take them off. Huh.
0: So that sunscreen banana boat is like a curse.
1: Oh, maybe it is. <laughs> I think it's bananas on the boat now. Now I can't remember if that's the wrong fruit. There's Clip a certain- Yeah, I'll figure it out. That's I'll totally our- find it. But I'll find out and put it at the bottom.
0: Yes. <laughs> yeah. So he goes on the Lusitania and then makes it to New York City. And uh yeah, I I don't know. I, I wouldn't put it past him. To to suggest that he he had something to do with that, but it's not suggested by Tobias Churton or Rich Spence. So who knows? Um, but he he ends up writing with uh, the Vanity Fair still and working for an astrologer named Ev- Evangeline Adams. Uh, and he's doing all this sex magic in Turkish bathhouses, and he's also writing for a pro-German newspaper called The Fatherland, and, you know, people have pointed this out and said, oh, Crowley was a traitor, he was writing pro-German stuff, you know, and they use this to discredit him almost as a way to, like, turn people from the spy story, right? Because, oh, Crowley could never have been a spy for England. He was a, a disreputable traitor who was sympathetic towards Germany. No, 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 no. He was in New York City writing propaganda so that the United States would be afraid of Germany and then compelled more to go along with Britain in this World War One. So, you know, we have Crowley the propagandist who, uh, is, you know, kind of playing along in this role, uh, as a spy in the United States, uh, helping out the British cause and undermining the German cause as he's pretending to be for the German cause. So, you know, kind of complicated, but when you look at what happened in, uh, You know, in light of this with World War II, it makes sense. And it's mentioned several times by Crowley that he feels so patriotic that he goes and he compels some friend of his to let him enlist as a spy. Oh, I do so great as a spy. Please let me go be a spy to fight these Germans in world war two. And they kind of laugh him off. Like, no, you're too old. You're too senile. You're too crazy to do something like that. But I think this is, again, just more cover up to like throw you off the trail, throw your nose off the scent that Crowley was actually a spy the whole time. And, and probably gave uh, his, you know, occult expertise At that point, from more of a, uh, you know, an insider kind of perspective, like a guy that they can call on and be like, hey, Crowley, tell us about, you know, this thing, because you know that there's this Rudolf Hess guy who was like a Nazi wizard or something, uh, this black magician that Hitler had uh, hired, and he flew into, I think, Scotland trying to battle I think Alistair Crowley or someone else. And uh, the guy ends up taking a plane to England and parachutes over. He doesn't land where he thought he was going to land and he gets arrested by the British authorities. So it seems like Crowley is still helping the British uh, even after he claims that he's not like an active spy or, or after he you know claims that he wants to be a spy you know again it's it's trying to throw you off the trail uh but yeah Crowley clearly was connected to a lot of uh strange stuff as you can see on the on his uh regalia here he has the knights of malta star sort of at the center there and a bunch of uh emblems and things from his uh time in the various secret societies, whether Golden Dawn or OTO or Freemasons and so on and so forth. He has a 33rd degree in Freemasonry. And, um, you know, one of the, the interesting things that I'll say about Crowley again and World War II is all of that occult intrigue made its way into the cia obviously and their approach to espionage and coercion so you know although i haven't found like a direct correlation i think it's worth pointing out that like crowley clearly had uh an effect on the intelligence community and maybe that's because the intelligence community had always been a cult. I mean, obviously, like people always say, John D was the first spy for the, you know, first spy occultist for the Queen of England at the time, right, Queen Elizabeth. So, um, it's definitely not far fetched to suggest that this was a part of, you know, only. A couple, one or two decades later, the CIA and making their uh, protocol and all the different projects that they've got going on throughout the history. But yeah, Crowley, he traveled all over.
1: If Especially if you go back to the idea of Barbara maybe potentially being related to Crowley and the Prescott Bush of it all and the oh, whole yeah. formation of that. It's so many levels deep. And then there's other people that think we've always been under the Queen of England And uh, some people think there's lineage to the Queen Elizabeth and uh, this whole thing of uh, Barbara Bush. And so other people think that when you take Harry and Meghan, that's just a whole setup that pop culture wise, their child could potentially be the president of the United States. And then we're sitting under the royalty publicly, like that would be the new world order like the united kingdom isn't necessarily just a crown it's like united nations united kingdom it's like that is the setup that it's always going to be we're just part of the united kingdom so we're all marked with the queen's x
0: Mm -hmm. well yeah and at that time when he was alive it was like the height of the british empire right before they sort of their power waned uh you know the I mean, it started to wane with the American Revolution, but they were still pretty substantial and sort of consolidating and transforming their empire into more of like a overseership position, which eh, they've still retained that to this day. Especially when you look at their resource wealth, um, you know, it's this—it's the empire that the sun never sets on. You know, they have they have places all over the world and. They had guys like Crowley at their disposal. I mean, he, Like I said earlier, he was just one of many spies who also dabbled in the occult. But he made his way all over the United States. He went uh, th- up through the West Coast, uh, all the way up to Vancouver, uh, and then he came back towards the East. He went and did uh, peyote in Detroit. He got the peyote from Park Davis, which is now kind of a big pharmaceutical firm, was then too. Uh, But yeah, he went to Seattle, San Francisco, Santa Cruz, Los Angeles, San San Diego, Tijuana, Tijuana, sorry, Grand Canyon. Uh, So he's all over the place. He spent some time in Titusville, Florida, uh, but all the while returning to New York where he had kind of like a, a little apartment. and. He also did a wilderness retreat in 1918 on the Hudson River. Uh, I'm really excited because I hadn't found this out until revisiting my research on Crowley, and that's not too far from where I live. So I want to go and check out this island on the Hudson River that he visited and see what's up.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: Yeah, then we get into, and I don't have slides for this portion of his life, so but I do have my notes in front of me. And uh, you know, when it comes to Crowley, another event in his life that really like a cast a bad light on him forever and also kind of like changed his personal life forever was this abbey of dilemma, right? And the whole concept comes from Rabelais, who some scholars and some researchers say was kind of like a satanic priest or a you know a gnostic priest. Uh, I'm not conflating Satanism and Gnosticism. I'm just like there's a very wide spectrum of like interpretations of this guy Rabelais. But Rabelais writes about the Abbey of Thelema as he's kind of mocking Christianity. So Crowley loved that you know, as uh, someone who also enjoyed mocking Christianity to some degree. So he kind of based his Dilemic ideas around some of that, and that's where the name Abbey of Thelema comes from. Now, there's some interesting things about this abbey of thelema so it's in italy cifelu italy and you know apparently there's like prostitutes there's young boys there's all kinds of weird stuff going on uh you know i don't uh, rent boys is what the the term is is called and um you know a lot of cocaine uh young again young children with mothers present so you know Whatever happened, it's hard to say, but it got Crowley in a lot of hot water legally and he left Italy. He was never charged with any crime, but you have to wonder, given what we heard about sacrifice, if Crowley maybe stepped things up and and actually tried to, you know, physically sacrifice a person. And he was at that point in life, I mean, doing all sorts of drugs, right? Because the, the understanding of cocaine and opium back then was a little different. Like they didn't consider them, you know, life ruining drugs yet. They, they just, I don't know, maybe they knew how bad they were, but it wasn't as, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, as deterring as it is now. Right. They they were yeah. just doing as much drugs as they wanted. So yeah, there, I mean, there was a, a, cat that was allegedly sacrificed that was one thing that you know people were very worried about and the Benito Mussolini government basically was like you know what you're out of here deported uh abbey closed so it's interesting cuz Crowley himself i mean he definitely probably i mean i'm not i don't know this for sure but he probably would have appreciated a fascist government just cuz of his like political kind of taste he he wouldn't have liked you know the um uh, the ideological suppression or intellectual suppression but he definitely liked a strong government he was in favor of that so it's kind of ironic in my mind that, that that is where he ends up you know with Benito Mussolini as the as the guy who kicks him out of Italy um Italy is sort of a hotbed of that kind of weird stuff in itself, before the fascist government and like the mafia, which has some occult aspects to it as well, um, Italy is a very strange place. You know, the Vatican, so is, much. It, it, all of the Rome, you know. So uh, even Paganica, which I just recently learned, is a place in Italy, and it's also been, I've never
1: even heard of this.
0: <laughs> well, it's a place in Italy. It's also what golf is based off of. So they had a, a game in the roman empire called paganica and that was that was basically like a precursor to the modern game of golf where you'd club a ball around and try to get it into a hole and i just found it interesting that they called it paganica because uh the romans were conquering all these like uh druids at the time and uh what we're told are opposing pagan groups, right? They were pagan themselves before they uh, converted as an empire to Christianity. But yeah, interesting, you know, golf, totally unrelated to Crowley, but I've always had a suspicion about golf and why it's, uh, you know, an elite sport. Uh, where tennis, golf. Tennis too, golf. yeah. This is odd. <laughs>
1: yeah, there is a definitely ritual that seems to go on with all of it, even down to the ball. Of it, call it basketball mm. <laughs> and the numbers that they put on all the players and the symbology that they call each of the teams and when they play each other on what date and their Super Bowls and their Rose Bowls and their Cotton Bowls and <laughs> I just think all of it is one big ritual but yeah golf sus. The land they get to play on, the people that get to play it. And the more elite, the harder it is to play a sport, the more ritual and magic, I think, that actually goes on on that quote unquote green.
0: Well, golf, I don't know if Crowley ever played around, but (laughs) he might. Uh, He was in, like I said, the United States. And then after he got kicked out of Italy, uh, he spent some time in Tunisia, then Paris and London, and bounced around a bit. He uh, became the head of the OTO upon uh, Theodore Reuss's, uh passing, and uh, that was challenged by another German guy named Heinrich Trunker, who uh, apparently took the OTO in a different direction. And, um, there were some other guys like Carl Germer who wanted the OTO to go in Crowley's direction. And it's interesting. The OTO is still present, uh, in the United States and Europe, but apparently they're really like just a shell of a group. Like they're they They claim they have four thousand members, but the truth is they have four thousand inactive members, and like among those members maybe like a few hundred active members so uh it's you know was then and still is a very small group of people who are actually kind of participating in this stuff uh but i I do think you know when you look at Crowley and his association with the intelligence agencies. Um, and the elite circles it's like maybe he was just left out of all of that and like took some of that stuff to the more working man artists communities because those are the people that accepted him um and maybe there's something similar to like these groups that perform ceremonial magic and even potentially sacrificing individuals maybe they just are part of similar organizations that were like ancillary or tangential or or maybe just like in the same milieu, but not related. So, you know, we can't discount that. But Crowley after this, I mean, he just goes into drug fiendom. Like he's trying to quit heroin, can't quit heroin. He's still writing, you know, he wrote that very influential diary of a drug fiend. And I think that that is primarily like the vehicle that brings him into american pop culture right because a lot of the artists that were influential in the 60s they were also drug addicts themselves at some point in their life and if you look into dave mcgowan's work you see that drugs were not only just like a part of the drug scene but they were like manufactured into the drug scene they were presented through music onto the culture uh, as a way, a vehicle for getting people hooked on drugs. So bands like the Grateful Dead would have like a house acid dealer, but they would also have like a gang of heroin dealers as well that would be associated with them later in their Careers and and that's the same story with a lot of artists. Unfortunately, I mean Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, right? Uh, John Lennon did heroin. Like all of these, like very influential artists of that time find themselves doing opium and that's very much because of the power structure that's supplying the finances to promote this music and get this new uh, industry off the ground because it was very much a new industry entertainment you know it didn't exist like that up until that time i mean elvis was kind of like the first national act before that it was primarily like the arts and high society community who would have like touring musicians it wasn't like common people you know aside from maybe like a local act or or a place like nashville that just always had music in it right so you know you have to imagine that the music scene being pumped with drugs and then crowley having this reputation for doing heroin, I think that's really where you find this darker occult element coming into the music scene. And a lot of those people who are already doing heroin, I mean, that's such a life-altering drug. If you come clean from that, uh, you know, it's not a stretch to go into the realm of black magic uh, because you've already kind of hit the abyss so to speak with your addiction and i've never done heroin i've never been addicted to you know drug like that so i can't speak to that experience but i'm sure it was very difficult and detrimental to crowd was
1: curious with the opium war part down yeah. to the World war war one part down right. to now he's in america and like you're saying um this culture so the biggest book To get published and to get printed and all this, these are all connections and propaganda pushes. So each place that the spy goes and now he's pushing a rhetoric of the drug the same way like Kurt Cobain repushes it again. We watch the rinse and repeat cycle um, of the war that they already told us, hey, we're going to use heroin and opium and cocaine and stuff to uh, take down China. We already know that's what they did with this war. So then they come over and they're like, how are we going to take down America? Right. Same exact game plan.
0: Right. And, uh, you know, I'm playing on the safe side with all this. There's the potential that a researcher who's better than I can come in and and back up a lot of the suggestions i'm making and and take it a step further but you know I, i'm i'm just erring on the safe side because i'm not uh i'm not you know invested in this subject i'm not writing a book about it it's just something that i'm interested in and also you know there's so much hubbub about a guy like crowley it, it kind of becomes obnoxious after a while when you've and- done the research to hear a lot of stuff that doesn't amount to much now that being said if only the people were to focus on the stuff that's actually there instead of the things that are kind of given to us as disinformation to throw us off the trail well then then i'd be for a a, a flogging of Crowley i'd be for their public statements against him because they'd be backed up by the facts not conjecture and 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 rumor which unfortunately makes every conspiracy theorist look bad when we just allow ourselves to not have the discernment and the you know this you know uh discrimination to tell between uh rumor and, and actual fact and and with Crowley you know it makes sense that people would consider him like this awful evil black magician because you know the occult revival was not It wasn't like a popular movement. It was a subcultural movement. It was an intellectual movement. And it's also probably why a lot of this stuff stayed in the upper echelon with the elite. You know, we talk about like more contemporary people that were strange. You know, Crowley, he, was, uh, fond of Gurdjieff. He met Gurdjieff and Gurdjieff inspired someone like Frank Lloyd Wright, who I recently learned about. And Frank Lloyd Wright had a lot of weird things about him weird connections and like possibly mind controlled people on his estate who, you know, killed some people and burned down his home. You know, the guy was an architect. I don't know if he particularly cared that it burned down because he could rebuild it, you know? And yeah, there's a whole story there with frank lloyd Wright that my friend recluse has been getting into on his show the farm but um but yeah crowley you know he goes off to berlin after his time in london and kind of uh this is all before world war ii after world war one he's in berlin from 1930 to 1938 and he tries to fake his own death um he puts out a lot of art at this time and he is said to have met with aldous huxley at this time who aldous huxley is definitely someone who's connected to the elite and the cia and all of those groups that are part of the like kind of culture creator tavistock style that led through that 60s so uh that 60s era so yeah crowley you know you have clear connections he's also an influence on a guy who's just kind of disgusting um this guy kinsey who kind of made it more uh what's the right term he kind of like promoted these pedophilic concepts through his clinical pediatrician uh, psychology work so you know it does go into those really gross realms. Yeah, there's
1: a lot of dark stuff in Kinsey's yeah. research.
0: Yeah, and then Kinsey, you know, he and was... And
1: Hollywood does a really good job, like they always do, of sugarcoating like it and making it. him look like an okay dude.
0: Yeah, and and Kinsey was very much a part of, like, that Hollywood... Like, if affected by that Hollywood scene that was affected by Crowley, right? So...
1: You know yeah. what's so funny? It just dawned on me right this second. Kinsey's scale is one to seven. Of sexuality, <laughs> well, yeah, holy they like, shit,
0: <laughs> they like the the numerology. I mean, I'm definitely that's like the I'm the I'm not really an expert in numerology, but there's a case to be made that like numerology and gematria has something to do with all this. Uh, S. K. Bain wrote a book connecting the 9-11 stuff to Crowley's writings somehow. So, you know, whether or not Crowley knew that his occult writings would be used for that, I I don't know that he could have known something like that, but it definitely, like, he is the prophet of this strange new religion that a lot of elites seem to follow. And not just elites, but like scientists like Jock... Parsons John Whiteside Parsons who you know famously blew himself up and died in an occult ritual in a laboratory but he was a big part of like the JPL labs and there are other people who know a lot more about Parsons than I do but uh but yeah the Nazis came around and they were into the occult um some people thought that Adolf Hitler was a thelemite that he had had like uh you know converted to thelema and that's why he was into all this occult stuff but it seems that the nazis uh the the nazis abolished the oto and crowley basically told people in the united states that hitler was a black magician because of this so maybe this is a part of again like crowley he's in berlin he's laying the foundation of something he's putting out art he's trying to fake his own death for some reason and then the world world war 2 comes along and like he's saying oh hitler's a black magician and and hitler bans the oto right so you know here he is again like world war 1 like uh asia and china and russia all these scenes that he was involving himself in he's like right there smack dab in the middle it's like this Forrest Gump idea like Today in 2022, if you hear that Forrest Gump, thing, <laughs> you know what I mean. A guy yeah. in every place, every important event that takes place, this guy just happens to be there. And I think you know, in that way, Forrest Gump is like showing us something about our reality. Like, hey, like so all of these events are are pulled off by the same people, and they use unwitting, like, uh, recovering, like, uh, what's what's the right, what's the, what did he grow up with forrest gump the fictional character he had like polio or something like we have these like victims who are like sort of on the lower end of intelligence who are used as patsies and they're involved in every major important event like that's like the plot of forrest gump that he's just like happens to be in all of these circumstances over and over and over again and they don't you know they they're winking at you about that they're not like and then forrest found himself you know know like that's not really like implied um explicitly but it is implied so there he is world war two crowley and uh you know he died during world war two um in nineteen forty seven on december first of chronic bronchitis and you know he was a smoker he was a heroin addict he was probably doing a bunch of other drugs but uh but yeah, he's buried in of all places, Hampton, New Jersey, and huh. uh, and yeah, it's just interesting. Like uh, again, that Forrest Gump kind of concept, or or archetype i right. think that's
1: a brilliant connection to make i've just done so many digs on just that movie and how every single part of it is a rewriting of history and a mockery in our face even down to how you were saying the polio which is probably a vax injury I mean, um but they're like oh look this poor kid um and even down to the elvis Uh, Which is just, this is our first big propaganda push to let you know what a top 40 is. So you think you pick the top 40. And uh, it's just every single detail in that movie down to when he opens his briefcase right at the beginning, you have the two ping pong paddles, and you also or you have the red ping pong paddle, and then you have Curious George, which Uh, the guy who did Curious George also redoes the entire horoscopes, but nobody knows it about him. So it's like this, like a cult thing that guys like Tom Hanks would know. And so I I bet you every single part. And then if you take Forrest just in that way, wow, what a perfect spy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, and the unwitting, I mean, even just the fool on the tarot card of like the person who like is the, um, like a like a primary sort of what's the right word like a, a an effector, like someone who just by being in the presence of an event affects it in some way without even being conscious of it, right like like that I think it's suggesting that some of us have this like divine will like Crowley's talking about do doest thou? will. He doesn't mean thou, me. He means thou, the all. And, you know, Crowley, when he was on that Hudson River Island retreat, he was Translating the Tao Di Ching So, you know, it wasn't all bad stuff. I mean, you look at Taoism, Taoism is not something that is uh evil, in my opinion. Maybe there's been like evil monks who've practiced Taoism, but uh yeah, I think like Crowley, if he was like this evil dark wizard, like I don't know that he would spend much time with uh with that. And and I don't know. I mean Again, we can't know for sure every aspect of his life because he was responsible for a lot of the writing of his life. So it's like, you know, you're taking his word for things and then you're taking his enemies' words for things. You're taking the people that were like not really kind, you treated kindly by him. So it's an interesting kind of situation with him. But one thing that I will say personally, I bought. The first tarot card deck I ever bought was his tarot card deck. The that book was going
1: of- to be the last, like in the questions of the last question, I was going to ask you what you thought of tarot cards in that deck specifically.
0: Well, and it was the first one I ever got. Cause like I said earlier, when I was talking about the cannabis connection with me personally, like whatever, for whatever reason, my intuition drew me to Alistair Crowley. It wasn't like, I had read something like, oh, he's a big, bad, evil guy. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm into that. Because like I wasn't into metal or like like I remember my friend had like a Slipknot poster and I was like, oh, that's horrible, you know, like so I wasn't like the type of kid that was into that kind of stuff. Um, but Crowley interested me because of the mysticism. And uh, I got his tarot card deck because I had had a few tarot deck readings from people that had and they resulted in really interesting things. Like I had initially gone to see a fortune teller type person, not knowing that tarot cards were a part of that process. I just thought I was going to go and have my palms read or something. Like I didn't really know that much about tarot back then. Um, But I was filled in by this tarot card reader that, the girl that I was in a relationship with had moved on and and met someone else while we were dating. She had met this person online and this person was like a long distance relationship. I was only like 17 years old. So I was like sort of naive and sort of innocent and sort of like a, a, a sweetheart. You know, I, I for too, I was too old to be that sweet. I should have learned by then. but anyways, I needed that lesson. And, um, yeah, it turned out to be true. And I had no idea, but it turned out that this girl, it was like gamer a gamer, and she had met some guy on some online game and started dating him, you know, long distance and and that's why she broke up with me. She never told me that. Um, but I found that out, you know, some months later and that kind of stuck with me and it wasn't that i wanted to do uh like things and like you know have the tarot cards there to like assure that oh i would get in the best relationship or like it wasn't that it was just like the fact that it worked made me very curious to see what else the tarot cards would do and Although I never became like a tarot card reader, it's it seemed like that was like the next step was like, oh, well, you learn how to read for yourself and then you read for other people. I never wanted to do that. I've just like personally I haven't touched the tarot cards in like a few years, but when I was younger, I would pull them out in times of insecurity and I would see what uh what they had in store as a message and and now after that training, I've learned to look for other messages that don't involve cards, that don't involve the process, that involve my actual reality and nature. And so, you know, Crowley's definitely affected the way I think about things in a way. Um, I know book- some
1: people out there think like tarot's woo woo or whatever, <laughs> but I think the universe has a language. And yeah. if you just want to flip a quarter and say heads or tails, if it, you could freeze it in the air, there's an energy on both sides of it to what you gave both sides of it. And you might know your decision when it's frozen in the air, but sometimes you really don't know your decision and yes or no isn't enough. And so if there is a language and an attachment and an energy, and sometimes it's between the creator of the cards and sometimes you can have an energy with both cards, like you might look at the fool and it gives you a different energy than me and that's why our readings would be different because it's the language from the universe to us right now. So there is this way that if you do need it, I do think tarot or even playing card decks or a quarter in the air, I do think there is energies and symbology from the universe. If every time you see a red cardinal, it reminds you of your grandmother, maybe the energy of your grandmother is around you. It doesn't mean she's around me every time I see it. It's just that's the language of the universe to speak to you about that energy. So I do think there's energy attached to symbols and signs and cards, and it's specific to you. And some people are really, really good at connecting to your energy and having they have their language between them and their tarot, and so it's really good. They can connect to the energy of the universe and talk to it for you. And sometimes it's just validating. It doesn't mean you're going to follow through with it. It doesn't mean you're not going to do it or whatever. But sometimes it's just a like, huh, I already thought that, like freezing the quarter in the air. Yeah. Like, I don't really need it to land. I already know what decision I wanted to make.
0: Yeah. Well, and what you're talking about is divination. I mean, tarot cards is like a type of mancy, right? There's a proper word for it. But like, claromancy is rolling dice, right? So like, there's all sorts of examples of of divination. Um, Geomancy, right? That's another type of divination where signs from the the earth are sort of uh, used for certain magical purposes. That's something that I've been researching a lot lately, but yeah, it's way more common than people imagine. Like divination is probably the most common form of uh, magic and it's practiced by priests. I mean, Mm -hmm. the Yale University seal has a, a phrase on it, which is a divination tool. It goes back to divination tool. It means truth and light, but it also has to do with this thing that was on Aaron's breastplate in the Old Testament, and it comes from the black and the white stone, and the black and the white stone were used as dice, divination, the same way that people cast the I Ching, they throw, or maybe even, uh, you know, in rural places, people like throw like tea leaves, or people throw like sticks and things, that's divination the way it lands the Waiting
1: for a groundhog to come out of the ground
0: (laughs) that's true (laughs) that's true i mean i didn't thought about it like that but that's true that i
1: always try to like blowing out birthday candles to artemis in a round cake shaped like the moon and giving a wish up for another year of your life That's magic, whether or not you're connecting it or not. And so we're like, when a priest walks into the room in a Catholic church with a sage, they're clearing bad energies out of the room. That's magical thinking. (laughs) Like, it's these are real. And it doesn't mean it's not real. And so I think there's like both sides to these crazy where in just the 3D of it, he could have totally just been a spy. In the magic of it, he could have just been a crazy magician. Both he could have totally been working for the British government because we know the military spends tons of money trying to figure out all this psychic warfare and astral projection and dreaming and pretty much everything you watch on Stranger Things. LARPing and the energy of all these like role playing and playing out a battle and on a play before we actually do it, how much power there is to manifesting it. Mm. So you can see all the angles. One
0: as egotistical as he was he probably would have reveled in the chance to like be uh an occult you know expert for the british intelligence like some at some point in his life i'm sure that opportunity arose but i don't know if you can systematically use magic in that way i think that's one of the things that crowley ultimately realizes that you know he kind of uh he he kind of missed the goal, like he he missed the mark. Um, he was very arrogant, but I don't I don't know if he's admitted it or thought the of the
1: whole royal family is all Germans, and so then you have him going back to Germany and doing this, and he worked for the British British intelligence. So they like the royal family is just German all the way until you get right back to Harry and William, which are when uh Prince Charles and Diana, which is Winston Churchill's kin, like Spencer Churchill. So that's the next womb where there's actually England even involved in this German heritage anymore. So it's just curious how he goes through all these wars. We hear all these things about Nazis. You have the secret service agency that's set up in America that a lot of people always are like the CIA's the same as Nazi IA. <laughs> it's the same thing. Uh, so it's just curious that he's the guy who touches the Disney guy and the Scientology guy and the NASA Nazi guy. And he's also British intelligence and how they're all German too. And I'm like, whoa, this is a whole crazy web. Mm. <laughs> and every name you said all today that are rabbit holes of their own. Oh, That's kind nah. of why I wanted to start with Alistair Crowley, just because he's the most pop culture version of and everything else you said. He's almost like this nasty little sticky pop culture glue that will come up later on in all these other threads.
0: Well, I certainly am not the conclusive expert. You could certainly do a hundred more episodes on Alistair Crowley and and they'd all be equally interesting as I hope this conversation was, at least my side of the conversation. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate you pushing me to to go back and look at this because for a while uh, I didn't want to look at it because I had a, a weird response from you know, that tinfoil hat episode and, and, you know, I had a
1: weird response. It caused me to do shadow work.
0: (laughs) What do you mean by that?
1: (laughs) It was just, it was the first time it was the information was given to me in such an unbiased way. It wasn't just a hate or a love. It was such an unbiased way. My reaction to it was so much like Sam's. Like, even though it was like, I knew you, I knew both of you on these two separate ends, but my reaction to the information, but I wasn't mad at you because of it, but it was just how you just stayed on track. You didn't change your tone with it. You just like, and so it still made all the information go into my brain. And it was always a subject that in the pop culture lore of it, I was just never going to look. I was just never going to look at it because I already knew what it was by my predetermined idea of what it was. And so all the rabbit holes that were just in that, just by having an open enough mind that I don't know in the universe if I would have if it wasn't you two guys talking about the subject in that way that day. And Mm. so it was, for me, it was just this first piece of knowledge that was kind of like the universe is like, you are ready for this now. It's time for you to like... It made me see like this dark part of the occult or maybe the occult in, in general, like let me start looking at it in all these different ways. So it was a really big episode in my um, journey, I think, of my puzzle pieces, like re-looking at something again and realizing just because you looked at this once with this these goggles doesn't mean you can't go back and look at it again and again and again. So even though what I thought I knew out of all the years in between that episode and today... Now to look at it, full spy goggles on, him just as a spy. Mm. This is what I kind of want to do with ideas is that look at all the, and then the propaganda that we all have and actually say, okay, where did this come from? Where did this idea and dissect it backward that why are they giving us this narrative of this thing? and why why are they allowing us to have this information of this thing and then what are they trying to bury with this thing kind of
0: yeah yeah and I might have said this earlier but my intention with that episode was to was to show where Crowley may be you know involved in the darker aspects of influencing the culture that we have today and i proved my point i think by sam's reaction right and i also kind of failed to put this message across that you just really relayed and i'm happy that you got that from this that we put the spy goggles on and i think richard spence would appreciate that because you know again Richard Spence, Tobias Chertan, like that's where a lot of my understanding of Crowley comes from. So I have to give them tremendous amount of credit on this if I even need to. And and I think like with that podcast, it quickly got out of hand uh, and that's fine. It is what it is. But I think like this whole like, you know, satanic, esoteric, you know, philosophy that people ascribe to Crowley. Like I don't think he would have liked that. Like if he was alive today, like he would be like, "Ew, Satanism! That's disgusting." Like there's a certain part of me that wants to say that. That's, but then there's another side of me that's looked at him and and thinks, "No, he would have been com- complicit." in that kind of stuff so it's still like it's it's for any one person to make their own opinion i don't want to make like a conclusive statement on on this person because at the end of the day he is just a person you know just like i'm a person and you're a person all people are 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 capable of tremendous good they're also capable of tremendous evil and i don't think crowley uh was on the side of good for most of his life considering his associations with uh you know all of these weird espionage people and and then also you know given what we know about the occult it i have to like check that with saying like but did he know that he was giving all this out so that a guy like me who just wants to learn about life and be a better person was he putting that out there so that I could use that for a betterment of myself that doesn't like compromise anyone else's betterment right because I think that's altruistically what we all you know want to do is make a beneficial impact on our lives while also helping others I mean when we really get down to you know the top of Maslow's pyramid of of needs, so to speak, if we could even go by that, like that's the ideal is to to be a better person and also somehow make society better, right? Or at least that's what I've come to so far. Maybe in five years, my mind will change on that. But and I think Crowley, like in a very deluded way, thought he was doing that. Just like any person who thinks that they're a good person thinks that they're doing good. But like Winston Churchill, like he thought he was great. They also knew Crowley. They were friends to some degree. They respected each other. And Winston Churchill, terrible guy. He should be mentioned with Hitler and Stalin as, as a, as a killer, but he's not because he was on the allied side. And uh, again, you know, like this, this is the trouble with history is we can't ascribe like these emotional charges to people Uh, and expect to go anywhere so as much as I do get fired up about stuff like that and I do want to protect all the children and I do want to live in a world where that kind of evil doesn't go on uh, we're not going to fight it by being immature about it and that's directly why I got interested in Crowley and why I presented the topic to Sam and
1: we- spreading misinformation it's the same way as if you call everything that doesn't feel good to your spirit a nazi 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 <laughs> right. now somewhere we lose what the meaning of that was racist 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 now we lose the meaning it's, oh this guy abuser abuser me too me too me too me too now somewhere it's like it, we're losing the meaning of all these things by calling everyone everything and not really knowing So Mm -hmm. it's like when it just comes out with this blanket idea and everything is pedophilia, Pizzagate, pedophilia, Pizzagate, and also not saying that Aleister Crowley wasn't, but saying that it can't always just be um, blankets on these things, even how many different orders you say all get attributed to him and how different they all are from each other and how many people that may or may not been his friends or enemies but get written about in history all the times together so mm. it's just well and he's know.
0: also he's thought of as like this awful lefty who like made the the far left like into all these like terrible occult diabolics but the people in the oto today funny enough are all right which is very strange i mean not that i'm politically you know putting my stance out there I'm not all right I'm not alt left or any variation of yeah. any of those but it's funny that like Crowley himself had that conservativeistic mindset from being part of England being loyal to the regime at the time um and his OTO which again he didn't invent the OTO he just kind of branded himself onto it you know there, Again, a very small group, as far as I've learned from other researchers. Uh, They don't have a big impact on society, but they do have a very pointed interest in the alt-right, which is interesting. Um,
1: And maybe the satanic don't look over here anymore. Once we label it satanic panic in the same way you brought up Damien Eccles, don't look over here anymore. Don't look into the real occult of it. Don't look into the real maybe trafficking of it. Don't like the Franklin scandal. Maybe don't look over here anymore because it makes some people, because of the religious upbringing, I don't even want to look. If yeah. it's Satan involved, it's too dark when it might just be so many levels of espionage and drug running and gun running that. But if they just satanic panic, you. Well,
0: how do you, you how run. do you keep? you know how do you keep your sh- your sheep in line you you get them so afraid of the the shepherd that they never question them, right so i mean i don't know I, it seems like the the that could be a part of it where they smoke screen all these satanic imagery So that people never get to the heart of the fact that the federal reserve is evil and it's enslaving us or people never get to the heart of the fact that all of their religions have like these sinister people at the top. So like, you know, whatever the conspiracy that it is, I'm not pointing those as the the grand conspiracy, but whatever the grand conspiracy is, yeah, there's an element of like, maybe they demonize the occult because the occult is a pathway to power that would then challenge them, right? That's personally where I stood to get interested in this stuff. Um, and and what I found is there are a lot of people who are like into the occult for like personal development reasons. And a lot of Ch- Crowley's defenders are from that persuasion of like, no, man, you don't understand. I use ceremonial magic and replacement of traditional religion because it helps my life. And for the, you know, so th- it's it's a very complicated thing. I don't know that the occult is that road to salvation. Uh, now that I've looked at it enough, but I do think that you know this idea of a superhuman is a very like enticing concept, and it's probably part of the espionage of like the occult and like getting people into this idea that oh, you can be superhuman and and. Maybe there are ways that you can be superhuman, and those ways are delegated only to the elite and kept hidden from everyone else. And maybe because of the internet, we've uh, we've broken past that barrier, and now it's all out there, right? So now they can't hide it from us. They have to just discredit it by demonizing it that way if people do find it oh well society will turn on them because they're they're devil worshipers that could be too good to be true right and that mm. could you know there's so many different angles i mean you look at like ghost encounters you look at like people who get uh you know abducted or people who have like weird succubi type experiences or uh, sleep paralysis like clearly there's a physical thing going on in those situations There's a mental thing going on in those situations. Um, Is it all a part of the same phenomena? Is it all a part of the same, like methods, like the occult, and what happens to these people in these weird situations? Like they're one and the same. It's a part of an occult. You know, that's that's where I've been looking at, like where that goes, and I don't know. Crowley, (laughs) I think. It's disappointing to get to the end of the Crowley road and be like, yeah, he wasn't like chopping the heads off of babies to a certain extent, because not that I'm in for I'm in favor of that horrible idea, but, uh, you know, like, that's like the impression that we've gotten from the fringe culture is that he's this big, bad, mean guy. And I don't know if it's all that it's meant made out to be but I also think that there's real evil within his life that needs to be pointed out. So
1: he I could hope. have been a super wizard. He could have been a super spy or he could have been Forrest Gump. <laughs> I like <laughs> I
0: think I'm happy with going with the Forrest Gump explanation for Crowley.
1: <laughs> I like that. I like that at the end of it all, Alistair Crowley is Forrest Gump. <laughs>
0: I you know I don't know if that's a, a, a elucidating title for an episode, but it would be a fun title for this episode. If <laughs> it might confuse more than it explains, <laughs> but definitely, uh, if they get to the end, they'll understand why. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love it. And before you go, will you tell everyone everything you're up to, where to get a hold of you, how to follow you, where to buy merch or support you? Tell them all the goods. Of my family thinks I'm crazy.
0: Thank you. Yeah. So shout out to all the Project Cheney listeners who also listen to My Family Thinks I'm Crazy. If you're new to my show, go to myfamilythinksomecrazy.com. I'm also on Rockfin and YouTube and Patreon, and I just started a sub stack so that when I do these sort of research presentations, they don't just like lie in my computer. I want to put them out on Substack. So some of this stuff that I talked about uh, about Alistair Crowley. That's my own original thoughts are going to be put on my sub stack. And then I'm going to maybe put some stuff like citing my sources of why I think th- what I think. And uh, so people can go to my sub stack if they want more about Alistair Crowley and and uh, all of the links to that can be found on com.
1: I love it. I call myself a conspiracy philosopher. Ooh. I just like to, uh, and so I think for you, you're kind of a, you're not a theorist as much as a realist. You okay. will talk about conspiracies that happen, and, but you like to talk about them in a really real way.
0: Well, on my show, I think in person, I'm a little more, <laughs> when is it not being recorded? I'm. Then we'll more
1: smoke recording. a blunt and you're like, oh my gosh, what if you'll go there? Yes. <laughs> you'll go yeah. there with me. <laughs>
0: Okay. when when i'm not on the air i'm a little more free tongue of like what i'll go on the record saying i guess but uh yeah that being said i do have tours that i give of a new haven if you're on the east coast you're listening on the east coast or you want to make a trip up to connecticut uh i'm going to Put something on the website soon that'll be like a calendar, so people can see when I'm doing tours. But I've done a lot of research into New Haven, and I've found out all this occult architectures going on here, and uh, I want to put it all together in a tour. I've given a few tours already this year, none quite like what I'm planning. So. If you're interested in that kind of thing, in person stuff and maybe hearing Mark's off the record thoughts, uh look for, for my tours because I'm gonna be giving occult tours of strange New Haven, Connecticut.
1: I love this. I think more people should be doing this of their towns, and it's something that I appreciate so much about uh I think Juan's podcast, yeah. one one podcast. And a shout out to Emily Moyer why I'm at it, just because I brought up the sports thing in golf and tennis earlier, and she does a podcast yes. where she really goes into all the background when of you that. you said
0: that, I thought of her thoughts on, what is it, Rafael Nadal? I was like, yeah, yeah. she talks about him a lot. <laughs> so, she was actually just on my other podcast, Esoteric America, where we get into that like more local... You know esoteric uh uh specifically we had her on to talk about austin texas the whole month we've done episodes on austin texas so next month we're going to pick a different city and each month we look into a city and find out what's weird about that that city or town so if you like that kind of stuff check out esoteric america on uh, my that is awesome yeah she was our uh, last guest
1: that is awesome yeah so Perfect, perfect. Anything else you want to tell them about?
0: That's all. That's all. Yeah, I mean, I do, I do a couple other things that are, uh, yeah, I could spend time talking about, but that's all for now. MyFamilyThinksI'mCrazy dot com is the best place to find everything.
1: Mystic Mark, thank you for coming to Project Cheney and telling me about the Beast, Alistair Crowley, who is probably more like Forrest Gump. And thank you, guys for listening to another episode make sure you hit the like and subscribe and um for my audio listeners go over to youtube and check it out uh i'm going to be getting better at production as i go and editing and everything we talked about so please uh go over and get a visual as well so thank you guys bye bye So she has been Chaney, and now she's off to smoke a blunt. See you next Tuesday, you fucking cunts.